The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Welcome back to Cancelled Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for the internet. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. That's all, just Whitney Seibold. And that's all you need, baby. That's all the information at hand. And this week we are doing a very special episode of Cancelled Too Soon. It's the second annual SUNY Awards. Yay! Now is that SUNY with a Y or with an IE? That's a great question that I don't have the answer to right now. In, in my mind it was always IE. But then I saw some people spelling it with a Y and thought, wait, which is correct? Uh, you know, uh, given that uh, we spell canceled with one L, mm-hmm. I think not knowing is probably <laughs> thematically apropos. It's, it's SUNY with one L. <laughs> the, L is, the L is silent and also sounds like an E. Uh, anyway, it's we've been doing this show for two years now. We just celebrated our second anniversary. And on our anniversary, we like to look at back. Look back at all of the shows that we reviewed over the last year. Uh, this takes us all the way back to My Mother the Car. Every episode yeah. from My Mother the Car afterwards is available and eligible for a SUNY award. This is a great opportunity to look back at the best, worst, and weirdest shows before we move on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and to okay. the third year of the program, we have a whole bunch of weird stuff planned for you. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, second anniversary is the cotton anniversary. I just looked it up. Okay. So I, here, here's some uh, cotton socks. Thank you, sir. And uh, here is uh, Liev Schreiber. He played Cotton Weary in the Scream movies. Hello, uh, Liev Schreiber. Hi, I'm Liev Schreiber. <laughs> He doesn't sound like that. He says that when he says, hi, I'm Liev Schreiber. He's a good enough actor. He could sound like anything. Right? Liev Schreiber, everybody. Thank you very yeah, much for stopping by. Our first celebrity guest on the Cancel Two Soon Awards. Um, so, uh... <laughs> and, and look, there's Helen Mirren. Ooh. <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Helen Mirren. <laughs> Again, Thanks. Ac- Thank you, Helen Mirren. Thanks for stopping by. What an actor. Uh, we have a we Amsterdam. We have a bunch of silly stuff to talk about this one. So uh, if you're new to the show, you might hear about some shows that uh, you haven't heard an episode for. We encourage you to to look back and discover some of the the bizarre, the terrible, and occasionally really really great shows we reviewed over the last year. And uh, if you've been listening this whole time, this is a quick jaunt down memory lane uh-huh. as we highlight the shows that, of all the stuff we've reviewed over the last year, really deserve to be remembered for one reason or another sometimes a good reason sometimes a bad reason yep and we're gonna start off with frankly maybe my favorite category mm. best theme music yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, theme songs are a lost art as <laughs> as we constantly discuss um there's a reason why everybody knows the theme songs to the brady bunch and to gilligan's island those are the best ones mm-hmm. they are catchy. Yes. They're short. Yes. And they give you the entire premise and the characters of the show 
within their rhyming scheme. A theme song should, I think, get you excited to see the show. Even yeah. if you've seen a hundred episodes of it, you're just like, oh yeah, we're we're in for some <laughs> sweet sweetness right now. <laughs> and of course, none of the shows that we reviewed lasted terribly long. Um, in in mm. one of the one of the uh, winners of this award only lasted one episode, so we only got to hear the theme song once. But it was a great theme song. Yeah. Uh, however, our number five pick, and we're going to count yeah, yeah. down in all our categories from our from number five, five to one, yeah, to our to our winner at number one. Our number five pick had. An epic theme uh, composed by the great John Barry, who, of course, did the theme for James Bond. It's a little theme from The Persuaders. They uh, actually called in. Uh, this is one of the earlier theme songs to use electronic instruments, from mm. what I understand. I, I was so enamored of this this very like f- funky, fresh, super seventies spy music that I actually looked up a little information on it. And yeah, John Barry uh, employed like some synth, uh, early synth into uh, that, that sort of baseline. That's all like mm-hmm. electronic, which was novel at the time and still feels kind of retro it feels, futurist. It in a sounds way. like yeah. a harpsichord. That's what mm-hmm. I thought when I first heard it. And it has... no, 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 not, not that part. Not the, harps, the harpsichord is a harpsichord. Oh, okay. Bow, 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 bow. That, that part is okay. electronic. Oh, oh, I, oh yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Persuaders is a show I have a complicated relationship with because <laughs> there's a lot of things I love about it. Uh, and yet it is a show that is not intended to be binged. Because no, a lot of the episodes no, no. are just kind of, I mean, they're kind of fun if you watch them like one a week. But when you watch them all together, they kind of meld in together. But every time that theme kicks in, you think mm. to yourself, this is going to be an epic episode of The Persuaders. <laughs> and it's going to be really sexy, too. And it's, got, it's, it's a got sexy these, show. Yeah, two sexy dudes and the sexiest clothes. I wish we had a category for, like, best coat. <laughs> <laughs> And they would all come for the persuaders, and we just choose Roger Moore's different coats. Shit, we should have thought of that. Yeah, well, <laughs> if there was a, if there was a there's category, al- there's always never again. If there was a category for worst lampshades, I definitely would have gotten <laughs> like the persuaders. If you missed the episode in the persuaders, there are two ugly as sin lampshades that show up every fourth episode in different people's like mm. business buildings and apartments, and it's really distracting every time. So there's there's two possibilities here. Either that was just a really popular lampshade at the time and everybody had one mm-hmm. or the BBC props department only had two lamps and they kept moving them around in the sets. I'll let you decide which is more plausible. Either way, I'm glad we took one last opportunity to lampshade those lampshades. Oh, dear Lord. Our number four is a <laughs> very... Lucky I don't hate you. <laughs> our number four is a very unusual theme song to a very unusual show. On the surface, it really shouldn't be catchy, but... The more you ease into fishing with John, the more you cannot get this really chill earworm out of your head. Let's take a listen. Fishing with John. Fishing with John. Fishing. 
So any quiet moments after I watched Fishing with John for like a month was filled with me eventually going, Fishing, fishing with John. And and you find yourself like humming that to yourself and mm-hmm. then you just sort of start humming to yourself, uh, describing what it, whatever it is you're doing, like cooking a steak, napping feeding, with a cat, yeah, feeding the cat. Yeah, it's just cussing at cops, you know, whatever it is you got. <laughs> Fishing with John is maybe the most chill show, not only we've ever reviewed, but maybe I've ever seen. Uh, maybe in the history of anything. Even when it gets, like, kind of bizarre, it's bizarre in this really lax, chill, <laughs> kind of stonery and kind of way. Having run out of cheese and crackers, Willem Dafoe froze to death. The end. <laughs> I made a Fishing mistake! They lived! <laughs> um, but uh, but and, and Fishing with John, again, you know, the Persuaders didn't have... Uh, uh, lyrics, but it totally prepared you for just how sexy and how cool uh, and how epic that show was going to be. Fishing with John prepares <laughs> you; it lulls you into it. It's like you know when you're in bed and you're tired, but you're not sleepy, so you like read like an okay book. Yeah, and like yeah. that just sort of like just the act of reading and only focusing on abstract words, and within like three pages, you feel like your eyesight going down. That's the theme song to Fishing with John. It's just <laughs> it's getting you ready. Time. It's getting you ready for Dream Logic, mm. and it is really quite perfect. I'm mm. a big, big fan of it. Um, by by John Lurie, who hosted the show. So, but our next the the next three are way more like catchy, poppy, awesome. Well, more appropriate TV theme songs. And uh, our pick for number three is another one that got stuck in my head for a really <laughs> long time. And it gets to the point, again, and this is months later, mm. where every once in a while, I'll just be standing in line at the post office or something, and everyone will jump when I suddenly sing, You're undercover! <laughs> David Cassidy, Man Undercover. One of the weirder premises for a show that we've had. Uh, it, it's it's not so weird a premise because it's about an undercover cop and we've had shows like that before. But the it's, title sets you up it's for It's weird, weird because it's David Cassidy. Yeah, David Cassidy is part of the title. Yeah. It's not David Cassidy is Man Undercover. It's mm. David Cassidy colon Man Undercover, which implies that David Cassidy, the, song, the, the singer mm. and the actor... Has been like hired by Moon, the, moonlighting as an undercover cop, which sounds like, hilarious. Sounds like an Adult Swim series, <laughs> but he actually was just playing an undercover cop, and it was a respectable, mm. like not bad show. Like it was okay. Mm. Uh, the theme song is so fucking hip. <laughs> hot times, hot hot crimes. Whose soul are you saving? I'll be saving everything for you. And in the post office, you're undercover. <laughs> the, uh, oh, golly. I hate what Netflix has done to the TV theme song. I know. D- TV shows still have theme songs and, and, t- and title sequences, even newly one, e- produced ones, even ones made by Netflix. And yet they've offered 
really, really frustratingly, an option of skipping the opening and closing credits. And sometimes if you just let it play, it will skip over the closing credits of one episode and just begin after the theme song of the next one. So it's like the drama just doesn't stop. They're devaluing these, like... And granted, you could argue that the theme music isn't necessarily the most vital part of a show, but... It's a part of the show that people worked on. It's part of the show that people make the show and pace it for. Well, and yeah, so that it's, it's it, interrupted it kind of by... bookends the, the unit you're about to see, rather yeah. than just having this big, amorphous, massive stuff. Again, it's supposed to like get you excited to watch it. Now, I guess some shows might specifically be designed to just flow into each other like that. I guess mm-hmm. if I was doing a show for Netflix, I might consider making the theme song optional, but... Mm-hmm. Even a lot of the best Netflix shows actually do have some really great theme music. Like mm-hmm. Sensate mm-hmm. has this really fantastic opening that really sells you on the idea of this interconnected world, and it gets me jazzed to watch more Sensate. Like, so I don't like the idea of skipping that. Yeah, I hate that. Yeah. Um, our number two is only number two on a technicality because technically <laughs> it wasn't an opening theme yeah this is a pilot episode it was cancelled after one episode it aired as a TV movie and it didn't really have an opening theme song but it had a closing theme song which is super catchy and which I predict probably would have been the opening theme song had it gone to series <laughs> it is the incredibly sexy theme to Poor Devil Wow, that's funky. When your heart has cold. Mm. Poor Devil was a failed pilot we reviewed in February that starred Sammy Davis Jr. as a demon who is trying to get Jack Klugman to sell his soul by getting revenge on Adam West. Also, Sammy Davis Jr. worked for Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee was like the Satan Satan. He was Lucifer. Right. And man, that pilot is just fun and it is funny and it mm. just the fact that it had Sammy Davis Jr. in it really made you think this is going to be a lot of music in it. Mm. And there wasn't. And just they threw one out right at the end and it's hip, man. Like it really, <laughs> like it gets you stoked. They really should have put it at the beginning. Yeah, it's a it's, real treat. You, you, you called it sexy. It really does sound like porn music. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like back in the seventies, porn used to have the like real music yeah, to yeah. it. You you can get well, I guess you can't really get it anymore. You probably found them used on Amazon, but there used to be like these big compilations of vintage porn background music. Yeah. You know, what people say like Waka Chawaka or whatever they want to call it these days. The bump and grind music. And it was like good jazz. Yeah. Well, it was trashy jazz. But you could still use it for something. Like, yeah. you would have put that in any kind of grindhouse thing, and it would have been just as good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's not to say that Poor Devil feels like it's necessarily of that vintage, but you could have this on in the background mm. and, like, and have a really nice date. Like, it would work real, <laughs> uh, real well. Have a really nice date, elbow, elbow. But, I, I hear your elbows. But, and it's funny we bring up Sammy Davis Jr. because he ended up doing a cover of our number one winner. <laughs> uh, our number one winner is... A real treat. It's a real doozy. It's one of the weirdest shows ever. It's one of the worst shows ever. And it's an ear drill. Yeah, you will get this song stuck in your head. And it's another one, much like Gilligan's Island, that tells you everything you need to know. Let's give a little listen to My Mother, The Car. 
everybody knows in the second life we all come back sooner or later as anything from a pussy cat to a man-eating alligator the way you all may think my story is more fiction than it's fact but believe it or not my mother did decided she'd come back as a car what? You know, everybody knows that in the second everybody life... Everybody knows in a yeah, second life. We're making a lot of assumptions yeah. about our religious beliefs. Well, I, I, there, there's a semantic problem, like an, a gr- grammatical error right in that line. Uh-huh. Everybody knows in a second life, you always come back sooner or later. There's three different concepts yeah. at play. No, it's we all come back. We all come back sooner or later. Yeah. So Everybody knows in a second life, okay, with yeah. you, you always come back. We yeah. always come back. In a second life, you always come back. You would only come back once in the second life. That's a grammatical error right there. <laughs> this is your problem. We always come back sooner or later. Everybody knows in one definite thing, we always do this other definite thing. Sooner or later, an indefinite thing. That's bad. That's bad songwriting, PT. And yet, it's so appropriate for My Mother the Car, a show that doesn't know if it's coming or going half the time. Again, My Mother the Car was a show about a guy whose mother is reincarnated as a car. By the recently late Jerry Van Dyke, starring the recently late uh, Jerry Van Dyke. And it, uh, it it had good episodes, it had bad episodes, it was super surreal, but like, this song takes so many liberties mm-hmm. with my belief system, but it's also <laughs> really super catchy, and super catchy in this way that's not super catchy, it's actually just so chintzy and mm-hmm. awful, but it's perfect. Yeah. It's exactly the kind of theme song you would expect My Mother the Car to have. Mm. Like when you're up late at Nick at Night and you're just like, oh God, what is this? Oh my God, the car is fighting Richard Keel. Why is the car fighting Richard Keel? <laughs> Everybody knows it. It's so weird. My Mother the Car was a real treat. Yeah. That was a really long yeah. show. And it, it, I'm glad we took the time to do it. I'm uh, glad I saw it. I'm glad we never have to watch I'm glad, it again. Rather, I'm glad I have seen it. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, but I'm. I wasn't glad to be watching it while I was watching it. There, it's a. There's some people say that uh, mm. some people like to write, mm. others like to have written. And yeah. That's how I feel about my mother, the car. I like <laughs> to have seen my mother, yeah. the car. Sitting through it, on the other hand, bit of a chore. That, that's an old uh, uh, Mark Twain line, isn't it? Is it? The feels, defi- it feels classic. The definition of a classic is a book everyone wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. That sounds about yeah. right. All right, our next category uh, is best pilot episode. Mm. Uh, every television series begins somewhere, and some pilot episodes uh, are really, really great and establish everything right off the bat and really feel like totally cohesive and exciting. Other pilot episodes are okay, and they don't necessarily... Uh, uh, they, they might have elements that need to be reworked later, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily function terribly well. And of course, some pilots don't go anywhere, but they get released as a TV movie or something, or never get released at all, even though they're really, really good. Mm-hmm. So we think there's a particular art to writing a TV pilot that is very different than writing the fourth episode of a series or the eighth episode of a series. So we're going to give some credit to the best pilot episodes mm-hmm. that we saw uh, in this last year. Uh, let's talk. Let's talk about our number five, a little show called. Almost Human. Almost Human mm. starred Carl Urban as a human cop and Michael Ely as his robot partner. Which is part of our big celebratory Cops with Robot Partners month that we had earlier this year. One of my favorite things we've ever done. Uh, <laughs> Almost Human, it feels like a blockbuster movie. 
It had really, really high production values. It had kind of an elaborate premise. It had interesting uh, characters and... It was all laid out really quickly and really efficiently. Uh, the tone was set mm-hmm. right in the pilot. Uh, then they really give an opportunity to they, – they do a lot of they, – they take every opportunity to set up the world. Every single scene feels like it's serving multiple functions. Mm-hmm. Um, we get to really see how this world interacts with robots in a way mm-hmm. that is actually very atypical of the cops with robot partner genre. Usually robots aren't as prevalent mm-hmm. uh, in the actual world itself. And the, and the robot cop is like this big – Top secret it's, new. It's always a prototype. Uh, pretty the much, Robocop is almost always a prototype, yeah. except in Almost Human. Yeah, in Almost Human, he's a relic, and he's actually unlike most cop with robot partner shows, in which the cop is this grizzled, emotional person, and the robot is learning what it's like to be human. Mm-hmm. The robot is actually more human mm-hmm. and more emotional, more well adjusted in a <laughs> lot of ways, more more vulnerable mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and the relationship <laughs> Be- that they set better, up, better hung as it turns out. Turns out, <laughs> Michael Ealy and Carl Urban just right from this opening episode set up mm-hmm. such a great rapport, like instantly mm-hmm. a great rapport, the kind of thing that would normally take a show five or six episodes to build. Right off the bat, they are great. They are hilarious. It's action packed. It is exciting. My one complaint with this is that the big plot. Like a bunch of like cops who are like a bad yeah. guys who have a vendetta against the cops. It's kind of nothing. It just gives them something to fight and gets out of the way, which well, and, is fine. And it, and it sets up a larger mystery that as the series went on, it didn't explore. But in the pilot, it seemed kind of intriguing. So we, we can just leave it there, say that it was kind of intriguing, even if it didn't pan out very well. But when it comes down to introducing <clears throat> the characters and introducing a fully realized mm. sci-fi world that we wanted to see more of almost human was Aces. Yeah. And it's a really, yeah. really great pilot. Uh, our number four pick is a show called Pitch. Uh, Pitch was a really uh, highly acclaimed show. Came mm-hmm. came out to a lot of fanfare, and I think a lot of people were shocked when it was canceled after it's, one series. It's one, of the, it's one of the most requested shows we ever had. Like, the second it was canceled, everyone was emailing us, yes, you have to review the show. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, there was some talk that it might get picked up elsewhere. That did not happen. And uh, I think, as we both discussed in the show, that's mm-hmm. a real shame, because Pitch was a really, really great show. It definitely had a lot of promise. So we, we did ex- you know discuss in at length the things that did and did not work on the show. The premise was uh, it was about a baseball pitcher uh, played by Kylie Bunbury, who was the first woman to be signed by the majors mm-hmm. uh, in, in a parallel universe. And uh, sort of the the publicity and the relationships that come from that situation. And the pilot episode is really, really great at setting up all of the uh, anticipation, mm-hmm. all of the suspense of her first game, uh, all of the expectation and how that is really weighing <clears throat> On Kylie Bunbury. We get to see a lot of great supporting cast members, including uh, Mark Paul Gosler as the sort of... uh, The manager. No, he's not the manager. He's like the captain of the team. He's he's, he's He's on the the team. He's he's the veteran of the team. He's the de facto leader of the team in a lot of ways. Um, And we see, like, right off the bat, him immediately... Trying to like treat her as one of the guys and then act and like becoming sexist as a result, her throwing that back into his face immediately, mm-hmm. and then him immediately going, "You're right." Oh crap! <laughs> yeah. I have I have lessons mm-hmm. to learn, and that sets him off on a great journey throughout the series as well. Mm-hmm. The thing that really, really makes the pilot of pitch gives it a real punch is the last big revelation. Yeah, in the show, which I I gotta be honest, didn't see it coming. Neither did I. I think it's uh, you know when you reflect upon it for like maybe ten seconds, it 
sounds dumb, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, right when it hits, it's like, oh, um, we see a lot of flashbacks to a young Kylie Bunbury being raised by her, uh, not uh, not abusive, but hard and uh, uh, coldly motivating father who was always pushing her to be a better and better ball player and kind of withholding affection as a result and how she continued that relationship into her adulthood and kept seeing him at games and he was his presence was really stressing her out. And uh, we learn at the end of the pilot that he had died some years before and the dad was just sort of the now the motivating force in her mind. And she saw him places. Yeah. Which and, like, is, and like had out loud conversations with essentially his ghost. But uh, yeah, it was kind of a big part of it. I was who disappointed was. that the show didn't follow up on that. Like that never comes back into play. No one ever talks about that. Mm-hmm. She had vivid mm-hmm. hallucinations about speaking with someone who was not there. They interacted with her. She has, at the very least, at least the level of stress she was going through was having a serious impact on her mental health. They addressed that a little bit, but at no point did they ever say, and by the way, I was talking to my dead father when we played catch. (laughs) That feels like the sort of thing that should have come up. So it actually bugged me that that never got resolved, but Pitch was nevertheless a really good show. that they didn't continue with that premise, that she will constantly be talking to this presence in her mind that she does and does not approve of simultaneously. It's like the, the whiplash effect. Yeah. You know, he had to be that hard on her so she would become great. And what what price is that? Uh, anyway, Pitch was a really, really solid show. And I'm glad we had another chance to talk mm-hmm. about it. Another show uh, that was really one of our more requested programs. We reviewed it this year. We reviewed mm-hmm. an episode with the great Brianne Chandler. Uh, and this is our number three best mm-hmm. pilot episode is Journeyman. Mm-hmm. Journeyman is a sci-fi series that is a little... It's easy to describe, but it's actually really complicated to set up. And when you look at the pilot episode, you just see how expertly and how organically they managed to put everything together, put all the information together, and introduce a whole lot of great characters. The idea behind Journeyman was Kevin McKidd stars as a reporter who suddenly starts traveling backwards in time to random times... Mm-hmm. Uh, and locations. And locations... And he has he finds out that when he travels back in time, there's something he has to do. It's quantum, he, very quantum leap. It's very quantum leap. He has to right some sort of wrong. Mm. He has no control over this, and sometimes it leads to some serious problems. Like he leaps when he's driving. Well, that's a real problem. <laughs> that's a bad, bad thing that happens. Mm. Um, in Journeyman, we have to visualize every single element of that very, very clearly in the pilot episode. We have to show him going back in time. Him actually rationalizing what's happened to him, going through all of the possibilities. And then what I love about it, though, not only is it well-acted and really well-crafted, they avoid, right off the bat, the biggest pitfall of a, of a show like this, which is the... The complete- causality loops? No, not the <laughs> causality loops. That's fine. That's just choosing your time travel rules, and uh-huh. that's fine. For me, it's the arbitrary we have to keep this a secret. Yeah, he can't tell everybody because mm. then he'll be like a, in a lab somewhere. I probably would anyway, but whatever. <laughs> he makes that choice, but uh, he tells his wife like right off the bat, and they find a really good way to like set up him proving that mm. this is true. And he goes back in time, and he like buries her wedding ring like in the foundation of the house, mm. and it just ends with him in the middle of like I think it's in a thunderstorm or something like him dig- breaking yeah, into digging the, through the yeah the, yeah it's great. It's a really, really, really Mm. great bit, and it establishes later, just throughout the whole series, that a lot of this is actually going to be about how this condition, and they treat it like a medical condition, Mm. is going to impact his relationship with his wife. And they're really great together, 
I, it's a I really saw great them, episode. I saw them treating it more like a, a really bad job, like a job with really bad hours. It's like, uh, like being on call. It's like, oh crap, I just, I gotta go. But gotta he, has go. No, he has no control over it. Right. So I saw it as being like, you know, like having a medical condition mm-hmm. with serious drawbacks to mm-hmm. it. So whatever, it works both ways, I guess. Um, our number two is a standalone pilot. And it was a really good one. And it's kind of hard to imagine it not getting picked up, except it was just too damn expensive. Uh-huh. Uh, it's John Woo's pilot for The Robinsons, Lost in Space. Uh, this one was very, very, very CW. It was made for the CW. Well, it was the WB oh, it was the, the WB at the time, which was folded into the CW. Right. <laughs> the WB and the UPN merged and became a demon. I mean, another network. <laughs> um so yeah, which meant uh, everything that implies. It was very uh, heavy on sort of the teen soap opera dynamic, very Party of Five, very post-Melrose Place uh, era. Um, but that did not uh, work to the show's detriment. I think it was actually very wise about keeping this family drama a family drama mm-hmm. and focused on the characters and their relationships rather than the, the international mayhem, or rather the intergalactic mayhem. Uh, which it also does not skimp on. There's plenty of intergalactic mayhem, and there's invading aliens and a lot of action scenes, especially in the second half. Yeah, the first half is is would play like any CW drama about like a family with like a, guy, a dad who worked too much and a mom who's trying to keep the family together and a couple of kids who are a bit disenfranchised and they're moving. Mm. It just happens to be that they're moving to another planet. And then and, once and, there's... And a there's, big... there's robots, even though they live in, like, a 1990s suburban home. Yeah, it looks like <laughs> they just borrowed the set from the Gilmore Girls or yeah, something. They're... Like, there's no... It'd be like they're living in this retro cabin today. But, uh, yeah, once the action does kick in, and there's a really good build-up to it, a little bit of mystery, and then a huge reveal that they're in the middle of a huge space battle... Once the action kicks in, this is John Woo. He knows how to do good action, and the action's mm-hmm. really, really exciting. And then it builds up to a big climax, and it's a treat. And I think as we see in the new Netflix Lost in Space series, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with the Lost in Space concept. You no, can do a no, lot no. of cool things with it. And I think the Netflix series is great, but I think this could have been great, too. Mm-hmm. It's, a disappointing, it's disappointing that it didn't work better. Like it didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to have seen this version of Lost in Space, hence why I voted for it as one of the, the be- better pilots we've seen. Um, I'm wondering, though, would I have to trade the new Netflix uh, Lost in Space for it? Because I love that new, that new Lost really in Space. Like, it's I, really I, like, I really love it. Um, and then our pick for the best pilot episode that we've seen is another standalone pilot. It's another show where it's hard to believe it didn't get picked up for series. But... It's so good, it kind of works really well as an actual movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if this had been theatrically released, it would have been well-remembered. And instead, it was a TV movie that's mostly forgotten, and that's a shame. Mm-hmm. And it's Poor Devil. <laughs> Which we already talked about. Yeah, we're going to talk about it a couple mm-hmm. more times, I think. Because Poor Devil is really funny. It's, re- it's like, genuinely funny. Like, yeah. not, not snarky, not self-aware, not camp, like, looking back and how, how quaint. No, legit funny, and I think the cast has a lot to do with it. We have Sammy Davis Jr. in the in the lead role, for goodness sake. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee is hilarious. It's not something he gets a lot of credit for, but he knows who he is and how he plays stuff, and he knows how to play with it. He's not always just the ghoul. And the script really, and, like, gives them a lot to work yeah, with, they too. Bounce, That's well, great. And, it's and very the, clever. It has funny ideas about hell as this sort of, like, you know, laid-back bureaucracy. The, the conversations between Sammy Davis Jr. and Jack Klugman are really kind of where things shine, because they have legit debates and speak in their own voices. Mm-hmm. Sammy Jr. Jr.'s like, well, like uh, that's an interesting argument. He vanishes and he appears the next day. Hey, I thought of a counter argument because that's the way people converse, you know. Yeah. And 
Jack Klugman is always right. <laughs> <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. is a complete screw up when it comes to being a demon. He's but actually he's, kind of a nice guy. So you like him? Yeah, that's actually the weird thing. There's yeah. even like a joke. Like we, there's an argument that you actually deserve to be in heaven. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not say things we can't take back. <laughs> like, he is so sweet. There's a line in the theme music, which we talked about before. You're a saint when it comes to sin. Sammy Davis Jr. is a really nice <laughs> demon. And the way that they frame hell is actually just like, it's not so bad. <laughs> it's warm. So, sometimes, you, look, sometimes you have to shovel coal. That's hard for, labor. For a thousand you, years or and so. And you have to wear a polyester suit while you're doing it. And it's got to be red. And it's a red, yeah. That's kind of hellish. And yeah. a, with a silk shirt underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, okay. I, I don't want to do that for 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, well, don't sell your soul to Sammy Davis Jr. That's a good plan. That's good advice, kids. <laughs> Oh, if you get a chance to see Poor Devil, you can find it online if you search hard enough. Mm-hmm. It is worth it. It's a real treat. I'm trying to think I'm of the, fan. like the last theatrical comedy because I, I seem to recall like in the Oh God days mm. uh, that the devil would show up in comedies a lot. There's like the Devil and Max Devlin, and mm-hmm. there was several Oh God movies. Uh, there was Bedazzled. Bed- yeah, the, the remake. Bedazzled's good. The remake. Of, I guess both versions of Bedazzled. Um, and I don't think we've had like a Satan comedy for a second. Little Nicky, maybe. Little Nicky was a while ago. It was like 2004 or something. Thing. Yeah, I think we've had a well. Then there was the remake of Bedazzled after that. Yeah. Um, oh no, wait, Little Nicky was like, like late, that was that was a was long like late nineties, yeah. two thousand. Yeah. yeah. Then we had the remake of Bedazzled, uh-huh. and I'm sure we've had another one since. But yeah, it's been a bit, mm. and it's all it boils down to how silly do you think mm. the Catholic idea of religion is? <laughs> and I think it's very telling the poor devil stars. Sammy Davis Jr. I do. Who, who's Jewish? <laughs> so, like, you can... Just, there's a little bit of distance there, and it's kind of funny in its construct, and it's well, you, really great. You, you and I tried to recast this for a modern audience, and I think if you, we had that feature film, you, you suggested Tiffany Haddish. I think she'd be great. In, in the Sammy Davis Jr. role, which is perfect. And as, as the devil, I still want Terry Crews. I think that would be... That would be a great movie. <laughs> Yeah. As, as 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 the Jack Klugman role doesn't matter anybody Who cares? and any boring movie star just get him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now the next category is kind of a big deal, and it's a bigger deal for us than it is for most other podcasts or other mm-hmm. awards because we review shows that are over. They're done. There will never be any more of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, it's very rare to get any sort of real closure on some of these. Sometimes <laughs> we're fine with that, and we don't want it to continue, and we don't care. Aww. But sometimes there's a cliffhanger, and it pisses us off mm-hmm. because it's so huge or so uh, uh, intriguing or so unexpected that we want to find out what the hell's happened, and we know we never will. <laughs> or, or it's so contrived that we're just eager to see how they're going to write themselves out of that stupid decision they just made. And, uh, and so the award for biggest cliffhanger, our yeah. number five... Mm-hmm. Counting down. Is, and this one's kind of obvious, and it's number five because it's the end of, a, of the pilot, and this is kind of where it's got to go, but again, we wanted to see where it would go further, the Robinsons lost in space. Yeah. It ends with them being lost in space, but it's not just them being lost in space, they've also lost their son, who may be dead, mm. who may have been kidnapped by the alien <laughs> enemy, I have a theory that he was going to turn out to be the saboteur. But either way, it's big and it's epic and they are screwed. They don't have fuel. They don't have food. They don't have water. They don't have an inhabitable planet like they Mm. do in the new series. They're just totally lost in space with almost nothing. Well, we had the pilot. Now we finally got to the premise and nothing. That's all we get. Yeah. See, the new Lost in Space was smart. They're lost in space right away. (laughs) (laughs) 
There's no setup. There's no, oh, we're going to get on the ship. Oh, I guess we're going to be lost in space soon. I hope we don't get lost in space. Nope, they're just lost in space right away. <laughs> and then they have flashbacks. That's kind of wise. Um, and, that, and really, that's kind of straightforward. So we're going to go straight to our number four. Mm. Our number four is one that actually you fought for harder than I did. So I want you to talk to me about mm. the uh, cliffhanger finale for GCB. Well, GCB, first of all, this was a show I liked more than I ex- like way more than I expected to. Like, I found the characters really funny. I found the, the pace to be really brisk. And it's actually really quite entertaining. Uh, I loved all of the characters. And the, the final episode was this really weird story about kidnapping all of the characters and taking them to Mexico. And there was a pastor character, like a supporting character, who was just sort of floating around. And uh, in the at the end of the pilot, or at, I get the, at the end of the series, he like was just the pastor. Mm-hmm. He was and a straight person. He, he was trying to like keep all of these people who claimed they were Christian and, mm-hmm. and believed that they were Christian, but also did very unchristian yeah, things they, to they, each these other. These were like the, the least Christian Christians you could hope to meet, and they kept on coming to him with these really horrible problems that he could not ever advise them on because every path that they were offering to him is like the wrong one. It's weird because you think about it, almost any other show, his mm-hmm. character would probably be the protagonist as like wacky side characters. Yeah, kind of like the, the put upon, but he. He's the put-upon minister, and his only his only response to any of this was always, just just pray. You'll figure it out. Just stop bothering me, please. <laughs> please bother me with this petty crap. And uh, in the last episode, he initiated a romance with Leslie Bibb, the main yeah, character. It ends with them kissing. Yeah. And even though the romance had never been there before mm-hmm. you could ki- you could argue that it had been there the whole time it's it's but, not a shock that it's there yeah yeah that it's, they went it's, there not, not- it's not a bolt out of the blue but it is unexpected and it would have complicated all of these brand new relationships that had actually just started up late in the series and i would and that just we don't get to see what happens there just all of a sudden he initiated this romantic relationship. It speaks. Can, is she going to get on the side of uh, of the priest who is like put upon by all of these people? Is she going to be stronger or weaker for having followed through? Mm. How is she going to handle this? There were a lot of questions that were just suddenly arise, suddenly arisen, and we couldn't ever deal with. It really speaks to because when you think about like some of like the the, the cliffhanger endings mm. that we didn't talk about that, <laughs> that didn't win in this uh-huh. award that were actually bigger cliffhanger endings in a lot of ways. It speaks to just how much you cared about the characters in GCB. Yeah, yeah. That just the fact that there's a new relationship starting and you want to see them together. That would be really <laughs> funny. Oh my God, she's dating the pastor. That's going to totally change the power dynamic. Mm. Kristen Chenoweth is going to be so fucking mad at, at Leslie Bibb <laughs> because now she's going to be in this air of, author- of a position of authority in the community. Mm. And it, the, the possibilities for comedy are basically endless after that. Mm. Um, our number three... Uh, is kind of a weird one because we talked about it, and I think it even won an award at the last Cancel Too Soon Awards, but we had to finish it up this year. Uh, it's Doubt. Yeah. yeah. Doubt was a legal show starring Katherine Heigl and Elliot Gould. Uh, it premiered... Uh, it, it aired two episodes, and we reviewed them in our first year of the show. And then, surprise, they decided to burn off the rest of the episodes uh, anyway, even though no one cared. So we had to come back to Doubt. So we had to come back and fix it so it's still technically eligible. And to Doubt's credit, it did get better over time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm still not a huge fan of it, but like by the end, it actually built to a really huge finale in which uh, one of the characters who was like a young lawyer who uh, he was new at the firm, he had gotten his uh, law degree in prison. Mm. Um, he is actually 
arrested and accused of helping someone murder another inmate while he was in prison. And now everyone, every, that throws everything into chaos. So people have to leave the firm in order to defend him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. And it's a lot better than the other cliffhanger, which is Catherine Heigl finds out that... The guy the, she's been dating and has been trying to get off, prob- probably guilty. Yeah, actually... Oh, is, he, oh he did get oh, off. He, yeah, he did get but off. But it turns out he's actually guilty. Yeah. Not a big we saw that. Yeah. We saw that coming a mile away. Frankly, I'm actually disappointed they didn't wrap it up. Because <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. But, like, that but that, big, that does leave you on a big cliffhanger. It so. is. It is. And I think, you know, maybe if it had lasted, maybe that cliffhanger might have been enough to keep people on it. Mm. Um, but, yeah, just that big... Everyone's just principles are challenged mm-hmm. all of a sudden at the end by having one of their own accused of a horrible crime and then dealing with it as best that they can. And it feels appropriate. Mm. It feels like the right cliffhanger ending for doubt. And damn it. <laughs> we'll never get more. No more doubt. We're done. I doubt it. Our number two is a series that I didn't expect to talk about outside of the worst series category <laughs> but the more i thought about it the more uh, i thought about it the more the cliffhanger ending of imaginary mary really messed with oh my God. head imaginary mary is such a t- first of all it, it was a terrible idea for a sitcom in 1986 and it's an <laughs> it's an even worse idea 30 years later i don't think there's anything that wrong with the idea it's our jenna elfman as a woman who's kind of in arrested development she mm-hmm. was uh uh she didn't want to be involved in any sort of committed relationship she finally meets a nice guy he already has kids from her previous marriage and she is now on a fast track to growing up just to learn how to not only be a good long-term girlfriend but also possibly be a mom yeah which she's never dealt with before and the stress therein and in this moment of stress a little cgi troll shows up in her life this is mary uh voiced by rachel dratch uh her imaginary friend from childhood who followed her in like followed her to college evidently yeah like went all vanish the way to college, until college went all the way to college which really it's a long time to keep your imaginary mm. girlfriend uh, your imaginary friend mm. your imaginary girl- no i had uh, a lot of imaginary girlfriends in yeah. college no, they lived in <laughs> they canada, all lived in canada yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, like so, like it, it's about mm. this sort of mental defense mechanism uh, that she has addressed, and in the finale, we see that she's finally got her shit together. She's going to get married. She's going to have these kids, and it seems like the, the, the Winnie the Pooh syndrome. She mm. doesn't need the imaginary friend anymore, and the friend just vanishes, mm-hmm. goes away, and it's bittersweet. And, I mean, I don't care because the show wasn't very good, but the con- conceptually it was very bittersweet. It was, the, it was the the one moment where there was an eyedropper of emotion in that otherwise yeah. horrible sitcom. But yeah. And by the end, mm-hmm. you know, Jen Elfman's like getting used to the idea of the of the wedding and the kids and everything like that. And then she has another panic attack. And then Mary shows up once again. It's like, no, nope, guess you still need me after all. Mm-hmm. And then Jen Elfman says, hey, at, like at the end, mm-hmm. hey, where did you go? And there's a weird pause. And Mary just goes nowhere and And, then and then we see her in the back of the truck from under the skin where she's just like walking around in this big empty cold black space yeah going hello yeah anyone and you realize that a mary is real because that's the only time we've ever seen her without uh uh, without (laughs) jenna elfman Uh and when kids to forget about their uh imaginary friends when they don't need them anymore Uh they're trapped in a purgatory hellscape yep 
What? So uh, that's the cliffhanger. Holy shit! That's terrifying. So if you had an imaginary friend, uh, sorry, uh, we just tramped all over your memories. Like you need to address that. That's really weird. And it's that it's left not me like on such a downer note, and it left so many unanswered questions. And it's not like a, a moment of sadness, like an Inside Out, where we meet the the imaginary friend and the fate that Bing Bong meets yeah. in that movie. Um, scene made some people cry. Oh, oh. Cried like a baby. I I sat a few rows ahead of uh, our film critic friend of ours, Alonso, and uh, he I, I could hear him during that scene. <laughs> Everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. how could you tell it was him? Everyone was crying. You had a soul. <laughs> like my guy. Yeah. I, I don't have one of those anymore. I sold it to Sammy Davis Jr. So uh, oh, it's a good deal. Yeah, <laughs> enjoy your silk oh, oh. shirts in hell. <laughs> I, I traded it for all this nifty cynicism. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it was kind of a sad, horrific moment to think that Mary and Mary, I guess, is experiencing real time. So when mm-hmm. she she vanished out of Jenna Elfman's life when she was presumably eighteen, yep. seventeen or eighteen, maybe, and then reappeared when she was like twenty years later. So Mary had been in that featureless hellscape for twenty years. That's horrifying. Wouldn't she would she would go insane? Well, wouldn't it be great if she stumbled out like her hair was all greasy? <sighs> Are, are you real? Like, didn't understand what was going on. I've seen nothing but blackness for twenty years. What is happening? What is he like? Had to reacquaint herself, and the imaginary friend was actually like kind of insane. That would have been a better premise for a show. Well, I think that's actually Drop Dead Fred, but we never really addressed it. Well, Drop Dead Fred had real problems. Well, Drop Dead Fred was like just a, a child's id unleashed. He was unchanged. He didn't go crazy because he was in a black prison <laughs> for twenty years. <laughs> He was just already kind of insane. Okay, fair I would love to see Mary kind of stagger out and all of a sudden is just touched. You like that episode of Deep Space Nine where they like inject 20 years of memories into O'Brien's brain? Poor O'Brien. That episode was horrifying. They send him to prison, but rather than take time out of his life, they just inject like the experience of a 20 year prison sentence into his brain, like what it would have been like. That would have drive you insane. Well, and he did go insane. Remember, he was like hiding out in cargo bays and like forging weapons and stuff. Yeah, it kind of went out of his mind. Jesus. Because he had an imaginary cellmate that he imaginarily murdered. <laughs> That's a great episode. Before we get to our number one, I want to talk about uh, a show that, by all rights, probably should be our number one, but we decided it doesn't technically count in the same way because mm. we did see a follow-up mm. and that's the uh, cliffhanger ending to Battlestar Galactica the original series yeah which has a really great uh, uh sort of missed opportunity ending they've the entire series of Battlestar Galactica these aliens uh who are descendants of the same alien species that seeded the planet earth are looking for earth as mm. a last refuge as opposed to all the other planets full of people that they just sort of pass by and don't yeah, stop I, I, at, which makes no sense. There's been a galaxy-wide genocide at the hands of the Cylons, except for the gambling planet and the <laughs> spa planet. And all. <laughs> they kept all the leisure planets out of the, the genocide. It's super bizarre, but uh, the last thing in the in the in Battlestar Galactica is they walk past. Mm. They walk out of a room going, oh, there's some weird signal. Well, we'll probably never decode it. And then it's uh, the, the footage of uh, the moon landing. Yeah. So yeah. they're right there. <laughs> they're right there next to Earth in the 60s, mm-hmm. presumably. Or, we, yeah. have, we have no reason to infer otherwise in that pilot. And the characters didn't see it. And if that was the end of the show, that would have been one of the all-time great cliffhangers. Mm. But the show continued with another one-season wonder called Galactica 1980, in which we found out they did eventually find Earth, and it was still... Stupid. They found Earth, and all of a sudden it was the present day. They had been orbiting Earth for 20 years or something for some reason, so mm-hmm. all the child characters are now grown up, and the old cast is all out. Mm-hmm. 
And now we have super children and, and who have super powered baseball that's games. That's right. And there's are like psychic children on the ship now all of a sudden. Yeah. And they go down to Earth, but like in disguise, like mm. incognito. And they kind of have to find ways to hide out rather than just sort of find a remote place and just set up shop and hmm. you know like the people be, yeah like in the people just do that do the people yeah why not who cares hey you know what maybe it's the same show be more interesting if galactic 1980 and the, and, the, and the people were the same show but our actual number one pick mm. uh for the most frustrating cliffhanger that we encountered over the last year is a show we've already talked about mm. uh it's the ending of pitch uh, it's not quite as bad as the ending of Alcatraz, which I think kind of still holds the high bar for, for cliffhanger endings. Yeah, that one last year because Alcatraz ended with the protagonist the pro- dying. The protagonist died, and they found out that, like, time-traveling criminals were all over the country, the end. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, what are you going to do with that? Well, we'll never find out. Damn you, Alcatraz! Um, uh, pitch ended with Kylie Bunbury having to throw, you know, a really big important game. I think is it a World Series game? I don't recall. Uh, it was like it was like a it was uh, some some championship game. It was really yeah, important. It was a super important game. And uh, she injures herself, mm-hmm. and it was in the middle of a perfect game. Was, yeah, in the middle of a perfect game, she's pitching really, really well, uh, which she hadn't been doing up to that point. I thought mm-hmm. that was an interesting uh, wrinkle in the show is that she's you know the first woman in the majors, and she's like choking so hard that she's actually not doing well in the majors yeah well it's it's in and, and they, out it's, it's in, in and out, and out. Yeah. she's she's talented enough to be in the majors mm-hmm. but she's not so good that it's like rookie of the year yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and you know there's talk can we cut her well you know she has a little more slack well that's bad for the team you know all the all those dramas come mm-hmm. up and yeah at the very end she's throwing a really good game and she injures her arm and the last shot of her is her going into a cat scan machine mm-hmm. and there's no word as to how if she's ever going to pitch again yep. what she needs to do to overcome her injury if she can't pitch if she has to learn to pitch with the other hand none of that is ever discussed and we'll never find out because <laughs> god damn it cancel too soon ah, definitely pitch. cancel too soon yeah. Pitch, you heard us bad. <laughs> right, our next award is the Lee Van Cleef Award for the great actor who later on appeared in something where it's like, ah, oh, that's you're better than that. Mm. The, the, uh, AKA the Slumming Award. Yeah, this is named after Lee Van Cleef, uh, a great actor who would star in a ninja series called The Master, which was quite embarrassing. Oh, indeed. He did the best he could with some really shoddy material, and we had no shortage of that. But his his fight scenes were really good by his stuntmen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, uh, some of the more uh, uh, sort of just like vaguely or straightforwardly depressing mm. uh, roles we've seen from great actors mm. doing not great stuff. Uh, and our number five is an odd example of this, because theoretically, he's the star of what should have been a hit show. But very rapidly... They found out that the co-star was actually a better idea, a more interesting character. So number five is C. Thomas Howell in Kindred, The Embraced. Kindred, The Embraced was a very uh, ambitious show. Uh, It was an adaptation of a popular vampire role-playing game, which Mm. is an unusual idea at the time. And even today, that would be noteworthy. Um, And... It was ostensibly going to be about C. Thomas Howell as a human cop who finds out about the secret world of vampires that has been sort of running things in Los Angeles this Re- whole time. Really overcomplicated world of vampires, too. Really? Like eight different sects all b- battling for control over different parts of the city. Honestly, yeah. like probably would have made it. If we did worst pilots, it would be on there just because it's hard to tell what the fuck is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but C. Thomas Howell is the star of the pilot. 
And by episode like three, they've basically forgotten he existed. I thought it was it was a little later. I thought it was episode five, but well, still, they yeah. definitely forget he's there. Like he, they very rapidly realize that the real star is the leader of the vampires, and C. Thomas Howell literally doesn't need to be in most of the episode. So even mm. though he's a, he's ostensibly the big draw, mm. you know, C. Thomas Howell was a was a reasonably big actor in the eighties. He was in Red Dawn and mm. and The Hitcher, and yeah. And Kindred Grace uh, should have been his show, and by the end, they're just like, we didn't need him literally at all. And the the vampire, um, like, there's a, a story with C. Thomas Howell where he starts dating, in the pilot, where he starts mm-hmm. dating a vampire woman. He doesn't know she's a vampire. Mm-hmm. She eventually says, I'm a vampire, and okay, continue with that. What's the series? Oh, no. Oh, she's executed right away. Mm-hmm. For, dating so, for, for dating him. For dating For dating him, and... Rather than use that to sort of leverage drama into his life, first of all, just keep keep her alive, hmm. so he, you know he can deal with the drama of having you know being in love with this creature of the night, uh, or use the her death as a springboard to explore his character. They don't do that. By, yeah. uh, they could use her her living or her dying, and they didn't do, use either of them. Yeah, just pfft, gone. Yeah. Poor C. Thomas Howell. I like C. Thomas Howell as an actor. He's a good actor. He's fine. So, yeah, uh, his character is so unexplored in this show. I don't feel an urge to see more of it. Unfortunately, they just sort of brushed him aside. All right, our number four, mm-hmm. uh, and and you you were bigger on putting this one on the list than I was. So I'm uh. very curious about why you think uh, Angus Scrim in mm. Freaky Links really needed to be on this list. Well, Angus Scrim was so old. <laughs> I mean, he's he's he he's, he'd been acting you know for many many decades, but he. By the time we got to Freaky Links, he, he had kind of aged out. I think he had kind of semi-retired several times. And I mean, he was still showing up. In, he still ended up in the last Phantasm movie. But yeah, like, in bed. Like, he wasn't yeah. even standing up in that one. No, he stood up. He I was, guess he stood he was up. around there. The, the tall, the, as the tall man. And, you know, that, yeah. that's sort of a legacy casting. You have yeah. to put Angus Scrimm in one of those. Yeah, and I think he did well with the role. I think he did, too. He's, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a horror royalty role. Right yeah, there. yeah so but Angus Scrimm, like, he didn't need to do something like Freaky Links. He was fine. He could have just enjoyed his retirement or, you know, done, you know, an odd theater project if he wanted to keep on acting. Freaky Links, this kind of hip new internet based X Files ripoff show, it seemed a little beneath him. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> and now I understand, you know, Phantasm isn't really like high prestige to a lot of people, but I think he's a very prestigious actor. And if you look over his career, he actually does have a very uh, varied and and extensive career. And, and it's actually a, it's actually a disappointing episode of Freaky Links because the idea is kind of neat. Angus mm. Grimm plays a, a novel author. Yeah, yeah. He's, he plays a novelist. He wrote a horror novel, and it got published. And then it fell out of favor, and now he's been like printing out copies of the novel and handing them out for free to everyone in this small town, and mm. no one knows why. As, as, and as a doomsayer, too, so he's really nutty. He's like, you have to read this, it's really important. It's- and it turns out that the novel actually reveals the truth that there are these invisible demons that are on people's backs and they're trying mm. to take over the world. That's a cool idea. It's mm. very in the mouth of madness, but like, it's neat. Well, and, and you have to, well, a new nightmare, because you have to read the story, and that's what keeps the, the demons at bay. The yeah. knowledge of them is what keeps them away. But most of the episodes is just like him just kind of ranting at the mm. camera and it's just like really would have been nice to have had him like given him something to do mm. <laughs> let him actually like really act in the episode so it's a bit disappointing mm. um, our number three stars an actor who was in Citizen Kane mm. he was in Citizen Kane he was in Magnificent Ambersons he was in The Third Man mm. and Joseph Cotton was also in Alexander the Great as a guy who helps William Shatner bathe <laughs> Good work if you can get it. (laughs) 
He played Alexander the Great's like best friend. I forgot his character's uh, name. Advisor. His advisor. His advisor. Yeah. Adam West it's, it's, is Alexander the Great's best friend. Which we barely see, but you know, I guess uh, he and he was tempted by um, Alexander the Great's rivals, le- uh, led up by John Cassavetes, uh, to perhaps assassinate him or mm-hmm. undermine his wishes or just kind of uh, uh, undo his good works. And uh, he was tempted briefly, didn't get to, and was murdered. And um, I think I, I, you were the one who were sort of who were pushing who was pushing for Joseph Cotton because. This is a meaty enough role. It feels really Shakespearean, and Joseph Cotton is a classy enough actor that he brings some gravitas to it. I liked all of the performances in Alexander the Great. You liked it more than I did. Yeah. I was just sort of like, I, I see some potential in it, uh-huh. and it might have been okay, and I certainly didn't hate it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was like, Joseph Cotton deserves better than this. And like by this point in his career, and John Cassavetes did, like everyone kind of did except for Shatner and Adam West. For me. Yeah. And so I was watching Joseph Cotton in this, and I was just like, Joseph, this is the best you got? God, the what, 60s were unkind. What was that that weird monster movie you did? Was that Latitude Zero with, like, the winged lion and all this, like... I don't remember the, the winged lion. Yeah, this big Japanese production with all of the kaiju in it. I don't remember that. I remember he was in Big Alligator Lake, which is this <laughs> terrible Jaws knockoff about a big alligator in a lake. Mm-hmm. And a t- big twist, the alligator is actually a shark. <laughs> I wish that would have been interesting. <laughs> Instead, it's not. I just see the alligator like unzip its face like in Scooby Doo. But if, okay, but if your argument is that Joseph Cotton might not have deserved a number three slot because uh. it was a meaty role, I did something good with it. Mm. Tell me why you really wanted to push for mm. Julie Newmar in our number two spot uh. in Monster Squad, a terrible show in okay. which she is awesome. She, you're right. She's awesome and. Look, Monster Squad was made by the same people that did Batman, which is why well, I some, presu- of some, of, some of the same crew that, that made Batman. And I, this is uh, why I assume Julie Newmar was involved. However, Batman is perfect. <laughs> Batman is one of the perfect of television shows. It, it strikes just the exact right tone uh, between a playful camp and sort of comic booky action. Uh, I like all the characters. I love all the performances. Everything is great about Batman. Monster Squad is like the sucky version of Batman. Well, yeah, that's it, a nice way to put it's, it. It skews even younger, so the, the jokes are even broader. The premise makes even less sense. Don't, don't think you'll just hurt yourself while watching this show. Mm-hmm. And the while the villains are clearly like hamming it up and trying to camp it up the same way they did in Batman, you know, Frank Gorshin was <laughs> – he put on those tights and, and he was another person. He just loved – he loved himself in those tights. Yeah. What was it, Frank Gorshin, who went to the orgy dressed as the the, the Riddler? I've heard that story. Yeah, there's I a, don't know how true that is, but it sounds an, true to me. There's an alleged story about how Adam West and Frank Gorshin went to a legit Hollywood orgy, like with naked sex and everything, dressed as their Batman characters. And I think they were kicked out. <laughs> how do you kick them how out? How do you, you kick them, them out? around, my God. No, who doesn't no. want to... Who doesn't want to boink the Riddler? <laughs> So clearly, the the actors on Batman are having a wonderful time. the The actors on Monster Squad less. They seem a little bit more embarrassed about what they're doing. Everyone seems pretty embarrassed. The, and Julie Newmar, she's she's the one who has committed the most, and that's kind of what made it the saddest. But she played like, like a witch, right? She played, I, th- I think she played a character named Ultra Witch. Yes, Ultra Witch. Ultra Witch. 
And yeah, she is having so much fun that I didn't even occur to me to nominate her for this. But you're right, it is a, it is a sad show to be on. <laughs> and there are good people on that show. Um, at least the side character roles. But yeah, no, it's it's sad that anyone like, was on that show, but Julie Newmar at like, least made the most of it. Sid Haig was on Monster Squad. You know what? That's good for Sid Haig. Yeah, for Sid Haig, <laughs> that's a get. That's yeah, that's that's, that's just a good... that's just working for Sid Haig. Yeah, that's a good day for Sid Haig. <laughs> Julie Newmar, yeah, Julie Newmar deserved better. Because mm. when you can do this much with Monster Squad, you know you're right. When you can do this much with Monster Squad, you deserve better than Monster yeah, Squad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but our number one oh. is is one that's just so weird. <laughs> So you're watching Battlestar Galactica, and you know Battlestar Galactica has some recognizable people on it. Lloyd Bridges shows up, mm. and then you're sort of just like, "Huh, Lloyd Bridges, interesting." And he gets to be a badass, and he gets mm. to be like a captain, and people look up to him, and it it's is. a good role for Lloyd Bridges. Okay, kind of like a, a badass role uh, version of his role in Sea Hunt. Yeah, yeah, you can see it. Like, okay, yeah, that's that's pretty good for Lloyd Bridges. Now there's an episode in which uh, we find out that Starbuck never knew his father. And a grifter who is, like, seducing all the old ladies on all the spaceships in Valsar Galactica. And good golly, is he charming. Yeah. Uh, he tricks Starbuck into thinking he's his father in order to, like, hide out from people who want him dead. But then it turns out he might actually be Starbuck's father. And who do you get to play that role? Fred Astaire? <laughs> Hollywood legend. Fred Astaire. One of the greatest of all movie Great, stars. Gr- second greatest of all dancers, right behind Ginger Rogers. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds more bold than it actually you know is. What? That's about right. They're, they're, uh, they're both amazing. I don't want to <laughs> compete them. They're both great. Whole backwards and in heels thing, but there you have it. Um, yeah, Ginger, uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. Uh, and he doesn't dance. He doesn't mm-hmm. play a dancer. He's just an actor. And, you know, this is later in his life. I think he had, you know, he wasn't doing dance films anymore. This was one of his last roles. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Like, it was this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was He was in Ghost Story, like, a couple of years later. But this was right up until mm-hmm. the end for him. And that's not a good one to go. I mean, he's yeah. fine in it. Well, but it's a role that's, like, really thankless. And we, it's very distracting to get someone as good as Fred Astaire. Yeah. We, we also need to sort of trace the uh, the arc of the movie star as it used to be perceived in Hollywood. Because point. when we were growing up, movie stars start, started in, like, B-pictures, like horror movies. Uh, moved into sort of the mainstream uh, prestige dramas when they could prove they could act. Mm-hmm. And they were in sort of the big Oscar bait movies. And then when their stars started to tarnish or wane, they either went back to genre films or if they were really desperate, they did TV. Mm-hmm. That was kind of low end. And at the you, very might, v- you might be able to get away with doing like a classy TV movie or something. But if you yeah. were doing like guest spots on David Cassidy, Man Undercover. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're just you're, looking you're, for a paycheck. R- yeah. Below that was cartoon voices, mm-hmm. and underneath that was dinner theater. Like, that that was your arc. That was the trajectory. Now we have, you still start in genre movies, <laughs> you still start in horror, but now you go straight into the giant action blockbusters. Mm-hmm. And from there, you can kind of sidle back and forth between the blockbusters and the prestige pictures. Oscar Isaac. Um and then when your your star starts to f- like starts to fall, 
you, I guess you just go back to genre pictures, or you just vanish entirely well, now. Like, what do you now, do? now TV is the good thing. Well, yeah, now yeah, TV is TV can, is the dream. You do some movies, and mm-hmm. if you don't become a huge star, you become a big enough star that when you get on TV, it's actually pretty cool. Yeah, when oh, you, no when, shit, then you. yeah, then when you get your own series, that kind of pushes you higher than you ever were as a movie star. Yeah, uh, look, and at, it's a regular paycheck, which is a great thing that to, people to bring like, him up again. Uh, LBF yeah. Schreiber had Ray Donovan, for instance. Yeah, like he never quite he got a, a show. That's star. a big thing. Yeah. yeah, and that's a that's a popular show. People like that show, so worked out really great for him but yeah at the time fred astaire doing battlestar was i mean it's probably cool when you're watching battlestar at the time but you're looking at it now and it's just like ooh, yeah, yeah was he yeah. a fan was he just i like this battlestar galactica yeah. get me on there oh here, here's the low end of the the modern movie spectrum you either do a film with robert rodriguez or paul schrader those are like those are like <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a sign you're on the way out oh. uh, all right our next category it's kind of the opposite uh-huh. is best future star Mm-hmm. We watch a lot of old shows. Every once in a while, watch a show from like last year that doesn't really count for this. But we watch a lot of old shows, and it's very common when we're seeing like a bunch of old stars, you know, on the on the wane, uh. to also see a young star before they got famous, before they got <laughs> big, before they got noticeable. Mm-hmm. Just have a small role in something, and you're just really distracted. Like, whoa, look at their hair! <laughs> and we had a lot Bangs. of these. We had, a, we had a lot of these. When people yeah. who didn't make our top five include Vera Farmiga in Roar, who has some <laughs> of the worst bangs ever. Uh, uh, we had Nikki Cat and Herbie the Love Bug. Who, who was only a kid at the time. Yep. Uh, we had uh, Angela Bassett in The Flash, yeah. who I think would, I would have put on the top five if he had a bigger role. But he's really yeah. kind of just barely in it. And But we have some really weird ones and some really big ones, and we want to talk about them now. Our number five. Are you familiar with the name David A.R. White? <laughs> well, I am. Yeah. Well, I'm asking our, our podcast oh, audience. Yeah. David A.R. White is a, a filmmaker, actor, and producer who is best known for his work in Christian cinema. He's uh, a guiding force in the God's Not Dead blockbuster series. Mm. He's the producer and he stars in all three of them, if I recall. Uh, yeah, and I think he directed someone like he, he's, he's, he's a big deal. Hmm. In that community. So it's really weird to see him get mugged by a vampire in Kindred the Embraced. <laughs> and he looks re- he looks like he just like he just like leaped into someone's body and he doesn't know why he's here. Like, what Christian allegory am I in? Oh my god. And then it's just like he's just in one shot or hmm. one scene and then he's gone. But it's super distracting and odd. And it's really funny because it's David A.R. White, White in this weird kinky <laughs> vampire show. Uh, it's just hilarious if you have any knowledge of David A.R. White. It's I, really funny. Now, I don't know his spiritual journey, if he was, like, super Christian when he was doing Kindred the Embrace. Well, he was or... doing, like, Christian stuff when he was, like, a teen. Yeah. Oh, he had right, that, like, right. uh, that like uh, it's a wonderful life kind of thing where he wished he was an atheist so he'd be cool. And then he's fin- <laughs> and then he's you wished to into- wish you're an atheist. Yeah. You can just be atheist. And then, like, uh, 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 he, like, ends up in a world in which his family, like, his parents are divorced and his sister was never born. Oh, and geez. he's got a hot girlfriend because yeah. he's an atheist. And I'm just sort of well, just that, like. Isn't that a that's, selling point? <laughs> that, that's, you'd think. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and it's just like, oh, it's so horrible. And it turns out because he wasn't Christian, he didn't, like, talk his friend down from a ledge and his yeah. friend killed himself or something and it's really weird and amazing and yeah so this this he was still doing the Christian thing at the All time right. it's really weird it's, another really weird one our number four uh, and this one's mostly just for the outfit <laughs> yeah you watch someone in like you just watch someone in like an earlier era in cinema and you're just like oh that hair so before she became one of the most awesome and respectable actors in hollywood jessica chastain had a small role in journeyman in, in only one episode if only I one episode 
where she played herself at various ages, which is what made it especially striking. Yeah. So, like, you just see her, like, and there's this one where she's, like, in leather with weird red ponytails, and she's, like, all, like, I punk she, and... Well, we made her as a young girl, played by a different actress first, yes. and then, uh, since Journeyman is a, a time travel show, we got to revisit her as she grows up, and that outfit, I think she was, like, maybe 14 or 15, like, she was a teenager in that She's one. supposed to be a teenager, yeah. But they really had to stress, like... The runners of the show have to communicate immediately that she's a teenager. Right. So they dress her in like hip quote teen clothes. But and it looks like the outfit they chose was like uh, like teen cliches just barfed on her. Yeah, it looks like she looks like she like stepped off of the set from Blossom. Like she was like at least <laughs> ten years too she, late for that. She didn't step off the set. She stumbled through the the wardrobe. Yeah. Like, grabbing things as she fell down, and they all fell yeah. on her. It's and like she'd escaped she from like. prison and just grabbed whatever clothes she could find from the wardrobe <laughs> department. It's like, okay, I'm out now. She's oh, like, I'm a journeyman. Okay, she's well. Michael Bean in the Terminator, just taking <laughs> clothes. <laughs> Would have made sense. She's good in the episode. It's kind of a thankless role. Yeah, um, yeah. It's all about her, like, finding a real father, and it turns out he needs, like, a kidney transplant or oh, something. No, no she's really... Because she plays the, the different ages that she plays yeah. very convincingly. She... Uh, is able to sort of port herself so she actually does communicate that she is those ages even though she looks I mean she still looks young but yeah she's yeah. in her 20s mm. yeah. but yeah so but she, yeah she's able to communicate that whole life and she actually does a really really good job with this tiny role and it's kind of odd that we didn't see her again until the year of Chastain 2011 <laughs> when all, like, all of the Chastain films came out well, it wasn't once. that far along it was only like three years later I, um, I know I, I feel like we should have seen her like you, people like you and I who pay attention to movie stars should have seen her coming well and we yeah. should have no one watched Journeyman so that's I, kind of you know, on us not. <laughs> our number three oh. is a particularly funny role from a future Emmy Award winning actor Brian Cranston <laughs> Brian Cranston played the obsessive compulsive villain who teams up with Robert Zidar. Just Zidar. Robert Zidar. Robert Zidar. Z apostrophe. Uh, it's not his a, middle initial. In a particularly memorable episode of The Flash. Mm-hmm. Now, The Flash had a lot of great guest stars. Mark Hamill almost made our list as well. He played the trickster. He's very well known for it. Uh, David Cassidy showed up as uh, the Mirror Master. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Combs was in it. A lot of great people showed up in The Flash. Oh, I forgot the name of the actress, but uh, the actress who played Prank. Who is oh, the, yeah. the 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 pre like the proto Harley Quinn the character? First Harley Quinn. Yeah, the first oh, Harley Quinn character. She was also because really she was great. also she. I was going to mention her at, at some point as like a supporting actress, even though she was only in like three scenes of one episode. Yeah, hang on a second. I'm, I'm looking at a Kareen yeah. Borer. There, there she is, Kareen Borer. Yeah. Oh, she, and actually, she was uh, really great. And that looks like she actually ended up on uh, the new The Flash series as well. The new The Flash is really good about remembering the old The Flash. Yeah, they bring mm-hmm. back a lot of characters. Yeah, she showed up. In fact, The Flash shows up in the new The Flash. Yeah. Doesn't the old The Flash show up oh, in yeah, the new play, The Flash? Oh, yeah, he plays, uh, uh, the, plays the Flash's, the Flash's dad. Yeah, yeah. yeah and Manda Page shows up as well as mm-hmm. a scientist. Like, they have a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah. I really ought to watch that show. <laughs> You'd like it, I think. It's really good. But, uh, yeah, the original uh, live-action series of The Flash... Very good show for the most part. A couple of dud episodes here and there, but N- nothing to weigh it down. Yeah, but there's a really fun episode with Brian Cranston as the bad guy, and he's like tracking down a woman who stole his baby or something. And it ends with Robert Zadar and Brian Cranston tied up with diapers over their heads. And that's exactly <laughs> the kind of thing you want to see in like a future star role. Yeah, sort of something like, really humiliating. Just something, something that's going to end up in a clip on Jimmy yeah. Kimmel someday. Yeah. Or just like, hey, remember you were in the Flash in a diaper of head? Please don't show the clip. Please don't show the clip. Here's the clip. 
Uh, also, uh, I'm chained to Robert Zadar. <laughs> now, our top two. Like, I, I love Robert Zadar. I, I love I, him, too. I make fun of him. I love the guy. I love he's him, too. Great. He, he's like He's in garbage like Samurai Cop. And that's why I love him. No, he's great. You always always committed to it. Mm-hmm. Right? You gotta let, anytime you see Robert Zadar in a movie, you're like, ooh, <laughs> it's gonna be great. All right, our number two uh, is we're an act- number two. We're number two. Our number two in this category is an actor who filmed this pilot when he was nobody, and by the time the pilot finally aired, he was an Academy Award nominee, <laughs> household name, about to become one of the greatest independent filmmakers in history. Mm-hmm. A man named John Cassavetes, who. And Alexander the Great got to wear like a chainmail skirt and fight Joseph Cotton and William Shatner to the death. <laughs> uh, yeah, the timing on this one was weird. So weird. Uh, he, I mean, John Cassavetes had been an actor for a long time. He mm-hmm. was interested in exploring the acting craft. He wrote about the craft and filmmaking. Uh, I think prior to actually making films, and had this idea that you know he could pioneer a new movement in uh, acting and in cinema acting. Turns out he was right (laughs) this whole time. (laughs) But in the meantime, he had to pay bills. So yeah, he took on a role in this pilot. And I think he does a great job of, like I said, I think all of the roles are very Shakespearean. And I think the actors are talented enough that they can pull a lot of pathos out of there. But it is, it does seem kind of churlish when you compare what John Cassavetes was to become in a few years' time. Yeah. Um, yeah, and start making you know independent films and changing the face of American cinema. And if you've seen John Cassavetes, film, the films he's directed, they're some of the greatest ever. They're harrowing. They're really hard to watch. They're mm. depressing AF, but they're great. Um, comparing a woman under the influence to Alexander the Great... <laughs> <laughs> Kind of makes Alexander the Great fall over a little bit. Well, Alexander the Great, like, it's just okay, Um, you know? It's just sort of just like, oh. mm. uh." And John Cassavetes, bless him, he sells it. You know, he's got to be a a, a traitor. He's got to fight people in the desert. Mm. Um, And he's, I mean, he's a better actor than Shatner, like, a million times over. (laughs) What are you talking about? You bite your tongue, (laughs) sir. But he wasn't slumming it. This was a good role for him at the time, but by the time it came out, it wasn't. Yeah, well, it's, it's just this weird, weird time capsule of yeah. John Cassavetes. And it's really fascinating. It's fascinating to watch everyone in this, because Shatner and Adam West weren't stars when this was filmed. Mm. They were stars after it was filmed. John Cassavetes was nobody when it was filmed. He was a huge movie star after it was filmed. Mm. Joseph Cotton, well, he was. it's pretty sad was, either yeah. way. <laughs> but, like, yeah, it's a weird watch mm. the entire way uh. through. But our number one... Uh, is an actor who ended up becoming a huge TV star. And in one of her earliest roles, she also starred on a television series that had such a bizarre premise, it completely overshadowed the fact that she was great in it. <laughs> and her name is Mariska Hargitay, mm-hmm. and she was the star of Tequila and Bonetti. <laughs> Mariska Hargitay is a very good actress, and Law & Order SVU is kind of, like, that's just her, her crux, but she's I've seen her in other things as well, and she's very good, just in, in other roles. She played a very uh, similar, even more hard-nosed cop in Tequila and Bonetti. Tequila and Bonetti is one of those shows that would have been great if they didn't have the twist in it. It's about a New York cop, who comes to L.A. and mm-hmm. it's big culture clash. He doesn't really know how L.A. operates. He's operating on the beach. The laid-back weirdness of L.A. culture is kind of a shock to his system, but his New York sensibilities help him on the case 
and he, you know, the, one of the LA cops is played by Marishka Hargitay, and they have uh, a good relationship, like good working relationship. Yeah, she's basically uh, his partner, even though his actual partner mm. is a dog. His actual partner is a dog, Tequila, and, and the dog mm. talks, and it's a talking dog. We can hear the dog's thoughts, oh, but only the audience can. Only the audience can hear the, the characters dog's thoughts. cannot, except for one psychic who can, which mm. raises a lot of questions that Tequila Benetti never answers. Yeah, the psychic shows up in two episodes. You'd think the psychic would be the sidekick. But what's weird about Tequila and Benetti is that even though it's a, you'd think it'd be a funny talking dog show, right? The actual cop storylines are really fucked up and dark, and they they're, send they're, the characters to some ti- really bad places. They're typical cop storylines about you know finding dead bodies and murders like, and rapes and other horrible like crimes. The it's, it's, second episode is about Mariska Hargitay like mm. falling prey to like this like a stalker, a stalker, like yeah. a horrifying stalker, and it's about her like protecting her child, and she sells the whole thing. Mm. She's very natural and all like the lighthearted banter, but when it comes down to the serious drama, she's fantastic. I'm wondering if they told her that there was a talking dog on the show. It's one of those things where you can't tell half yeah. the time. You really can't mm. tell if they knew how bizarre it was going to be. <laughs> but she sells it mm. either way. And it's really funny is that this really could have been her breakout thing. This wouldn't have been like a before she was big kind of deal because she's that good in it. But the show was so bizarre and stupid uh-huh. that it becomes this before she was big moment. But she's really good in it. So congratulations, Mariska Hargitay. You won the SUNY Award for Best Future Star. I uh, I hope we get to interview her someday. Oh, that'd be cool. Because I gotta know her thoughts on Tequila and Bonetti. so many questions about Tequila and Bonetti. It's so cool. All right, our next category is Best Guest Star. Yeah. Almost every television series, as it goes on, they bring in random actors mm. to just play minor roles or supporting roles or play the villain in an episode. Mm. And oftentimes you get actors who steal the show or are recognizable characters actors, or as we've seen before, slumming it a bit. Uh, there's no shortage of great ones here. Uh, people who we nominated and didn't end up making the list are like Willem Dafoe and Vision with John, Wolfman Jack in Galactica 1980, <laughs> Khloe Kardashian in Law & Order Los Angeles, who's great as herself. As herself, yeah. yeah. I really believed her as herself. But our number five... <laughs> well, that's fortunate. <laughs> our number five mm. is the great character actor Roy Brocksmith, who, yeah. who showed up in the pilots for Steel Justice and White Dwarf and Rocked the Joint. Uh, those are two, like, two really, 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 really strange shows. And uh, he essentially plays kind, kind of the same role. Same though, type of same role. Same type of role. In... in uh, in Steel Justice, he plays kind of this hedonistic crime lord mm-hmm. who lives in a in a warehouse and deals you know doles out crime and is very very uh, arrogant about the way he does things. And in White Dwarf, he played essentially hedonism bot, yeah. a, a really uh, he plays a hedonistic politician who he's, doles he's a, out he's politics a king, essentially. Yeah. He's a king. He's the king of the light, and yeah, he refuses to take off his girdle, and is very, very vain, and yeah, talks about how much money he can get for himself, and he's, he's very exactly shallow. Exactly the actor you get for that role, and he, like he's exactly the guy. Like the second you see him, you know the character. He's a Roy Brocksmith role, and Roy Brocksmith is is an actor I've always admired. Whenever he showed up in in like movies and TV shows I watched as a kid, uh, you know him from Total Recall. We've talked about him a lot. Uh, yeah, and I think. Yeah, he showed up in both of those, and the scenes were delightful because he was in them. And I, it's kind of a pity that neither of those went to series, however strange they were, uh, <laughs> because we did, we were robbed of more of Roy Brocksmith. Well, I don't think Roy Brocksmith would have continued in Steel Justice, but I think he would have been a regular 
in yeah, white se- tour. at least a semi-regular in white tour. But as it stands, yeah, great mm-hmm. guest star performances, great mm-hmm. character actor. Uh, always love him. Everything uh-huh. he's in. Our next runner-up, our number four, mm-hmm. and the best guest star, SUNY Award, uh, is a guest star that pops up in the last episode of Future Cop, and this guest star is so <laughs> multifaceted. Uh-huh. This guest star is so dynamic. And to, and important on, on screen for a long, long time. On screen for the longest time, I think of any guest star we've got mm-hmm. on here. Just the, the 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 screen loves Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> That's our guest star. It's Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm shows up in the last episode of Future Cop as a place mm-hmm. where the robot cop and Ernest Borgnine like keep like a child who's in witness protection, mm-hmm. and half the yeah. episode is them hanging out at Knott's Berry Farm, going on rides. Mm-hmm. Having nothing to do with the plot. There are several solid minutes of them just going on rides. Yep. Like no, yeah. The, the bad. We don't cut back to the bad guys. They're just going on the rides. Now and it's old Knott's Berry Farm too, yeah. and they had like different weird attractions, like this insanely unsafe looking bicycle roller coaster ride. Yeah, it, it was a, it was a roller coaster, but rather than sitting in cars with like bars across your lap, you just sit on a bike and hang on for dear life. Good luck to you. Yeah, yeah, and, and it would like whip you around corners. You're just hanging on those handlebars. You don't get on that. I can, mm. You couldn't possibly get on that ride without signing like a release yeah. form. You're just like, I promise I won't sue. I saw how unsafe it was. No, I, I, <laughs> I bequeath everything to my dog. Like something. I went to Knott's Berry Farm as a kid so this gave me a lot of flashbacks because it was a lot like it was when i was a kid uh those bikes had been transformed to the wacky soapbox racers so they became like sit down cars by the time i got to them still unsafe however closed down because it was still breaking down all the time i want to give an honorable mention while we're talking about knott's berry farm Mm -hmm. to uh universal studios Mm -hmm. which popped up in danger theater and whiz kids (laughs) sure did and was also great especially whiz kids when they like tricked the bad guys into the conan stunt show and like released the dragon that breathed fire on them. God, that stunt show was cool. It was a cool stunt show. It was a cool stunt show. It became it became the Beetlejuice musical spectacular yeah, after a while. It was really neat. And then now it's like just I don't know the magic of movie special effects hosted by the Minions. Is it show? Yeah, that sounds awful. I'm I'm not even kidding. I don't. I I believe you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Our number three. Yeah. Uh, is an actor who shows up for one episode of The Dresden Files and should have been the co-star of The Dresden Files. She, she should have been the star of The Dresden she Files. She should have at least been like her and uh, Harry Dresden. Like mm. should have been these two characters together the entire time. She is Claudia Black. You know her from Farscape. She is awesome. <laughs> and she, she has shows- more more character. Yep. Uh, a lot more energy. A lot more chemistry lot with more the lead ke- than yeah. anyone else. Harry, uh, The Dresden Files is a series that's based on a popular uh, series of fantasy novels about a private detective who is also a wizard. Uh, throughout most of the series, Harry Dresden is paired with a cop who's very important in the books, but in the show has very little to do and they have very little chemistry. And then there's an episode in which Harry actually finally has to get his official private investigator's license, and then the person who teaches the class gets murdered, and his assistant, played by Claudia Black, is trying to solve the case, and she thinks Harry did it. They are hilarious together. Yeah. They're really like, funny the entire time. We're talking about some moonlighting stuff here. Real, it's just, just amazing yeah. chemistry. And, and just she, astounding. 
and and she's gone. She's, she's gone. gone. Why didn't they just keep her on the show? Keep her in every episode. Do never let her go. <laughs> what are you crazy? Mm. My God! Put Claudia Black in everything. She should be the new Michelle Forbes. Wait, we still have Michelle Forbes. <laughs> she, right, yeah. Put her in a show co-starring with Michelle Forbes, where every episode they wind up in another show. <laughs> and just make it better and then the next episode so, they're in another show what was that series uh, or that movie with um Mm. Uh, John, John Ritter and he keeps getting like flashing into stay tuned stay tuned stay yeah. tuned the series with Michelle with Forbes, Mich- Michelle and, Claudia Forbes and Claudia Black I like it I like it a lot serious comment on today's TV culture alright and our top two are just characters we just love these people so damn much we mm. had a hard time deciding who was gonna be our number one mm. but let's start with our number two okay uh, the great inimitable <laughs> Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs. Who shows up in one episode of Freaky Links and steals the entire mm-hmm. series. Maybe not the whole series. For me, he did. Okay, you know what? I, 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 between him and John Billingsley. The, John Billingsley yeah, was also John Billingsley, good. who plays the, the diner owner who turns out his part squid. That was pretty <laughs> great. Uh, but, yeah, Jeffrey Combs plays a really cliched role in that he plays the wisecracking pathologist, a role that I... I have always loved. Well, the it, it's it's really cliched, but I still like it when it occurs in well, any TV show or movie. And it's born out of necessity. Almost mm. any cop show or investigative show, eventually you're going to have to talk about if someone dies, you're going to have to talk to a pathologist to find out clues about how they died. Mm. It's hard to write out of that scene. So you need a character who's a pathologist, but they're probably only going to be in one scene, but they're going to have a lot of dialogue, so you want to give them some personality, and usually they give them some sort of weird quirk yeah, or gallows just, humor. Just, just gallows humor is, is yeah. usually... And, and it's fine. It and, works. And and it, it, it's, it works every time. They're usually very interested in what they do. Um, you see Jeffrey Combs in that role, and you expect him to play like a, a ghoul. You expect him to play like Milton Dammers from The Frighteners or, mm-hmm. or you know, Herbert West Reanimator. You expect him to be kind of monstrous or Frankensteinian in a way because he has a reputation for it. And he plays it exactly the opposite of what you think he's going to. He plays it as kind of a gentle enthusiast. Yeah. It's like, can you, can you tell us about the... Hey, Jeffrey Combs, can you tell us about the dead body? And you expect him to kind of hunch over, tell you about a dead body? No, he doesn't do that. He turns around and says... Well, certainly, I can tell you about it. I actually know very lot. There's a lot of interesting. Are you sure you want to hear this? Because this is this is really a lot of people find this kind of morbid. No, no, we want to hear. Really, you want to hear? Well, fine. I'd love to share. Like he's <laughs> he's like Levar Burton in Reading Rainbow. All of a sudden, yeah, he's... this is a corpse. It's really fascinating. And they're very supportive of him. And they actually like when they get all the information and they're about to go off and like find Ethan Embry, who's on super drugs or something, is going to kill a bunch of people. With these Mickey and Mallory Knox knockoffs. They're like, hey, you want to come with us? Jeffrey Combs is like, no, I'm, I'm good. This is what I do. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, Jeffrey Combs, good luck to you. <laughs> I wish you the best. Yeah. You're so nice. Pr- just proves how versatile an actor is. He, I've always admired him, not just when he plays freaks and weirdos. but He, just, uh, he can add something but, to every yeah. role. He's so great. But he, our, he had two roles in Deep Space Nine. Two recurring roles. I t- and I didn't pick up on that at first. <laughs> He's, he was so, like, really hidden under all that Ferengi makeup. Actually, mm. no, he had three, because he was in an early episode where he was, like, oh, that's one right. of the alien right, right. terrorists and, like, something gets in his brain or something no, no, and he, he hijacks a ship. He or... wasn't an alien terrorist. He was uh, a, a visiting alien diplomat who had a crush on Major Kira. Something like and, that, yeah. And he, and he wanted to get, like, a holographic double so he could have sex with it. 
And so that what it was? Yeah, and he hired Quark to like get pictures of oh, Kira, like so to, to like invade her privacy and try to get this hologram. And Kira, of course, picked up on it and undid their plan. He was like, "This is an invasion of my privacy, you dick! What are this you is doing? Horrifying! What are you doing?" And so the, he gets his comeuppance. But thank yeah. God, yeah, <laughs> Jeffrey Combs, great actor, mm-hmm. but uh, an actor who doesn't get talked about a lot nowadays, mm-hmm. but who popped up in not one but two television series we reviewed, mm-hmm. and who was a shining light in both of them. And who is our number one winner for best guest star mm-hmm. of our second year? Joan Collins, <laughs> who popped up in both The Persuaders and mm-hmm. Future Cop. Mm-hmm. She's good in Future Cop. She plays this like uh, uh, a maven of illegal gambling in Los Angeles. But really, the role we're giving in this to her for it's, it's is for, for the, the Persuaders. Persuaders. Or she, she's she's like out Emma Peel's Emma Peel in it's this one. Oh so God, uh, she she uh. Roger Moore shows up looking like Roger Moore, sexy guy, has a suit that's worth more than God, and <laughs> steps into a room. And Joan Collins says, Well, you're a nice hunk of sandwich, ain't you? And she lays one right on his face. Like, I don't think she even introduced herself. Just said, I'm a photographer. I'm going to kiss you on the mouth. The most Roger Moore. forthright human I've ever seen in anything. And when Roger Moore says, Whoa, <laughs> you know you're doing something right. They then go out right, out back to her shed, mm-hmm. where she has a Herkimer battle jitney. God bless this show. <laughs> yeah, she this is this, the coolest ass show in the world. She has this huge, like fortified tank truck, and they're they're <laughs> Tony Curtis and Roger Moore and Joan Collins escorts this mm-hmm. like guy in witness protection, and they have to like fight off like gang members or whatever are trying to kill him in these huge car chases and they like stop and they have to trudge through the woods and everyone's trying to fuck everybody <laughs> and it's a great episode it's a great episode of the persuaders yeah it's probably my second favorite after the episode where tony curtis gets a mysterious briefcase handcuffed to his chest that was that was a good one too that, and, he, and he ends up like hitting everyone with it and it turns out it's a bomb with a hair trigger uh-huh. and he, no one knew <laughs> My favorite scene in that one is where he, he he's like running through the, the countryside. He comes upon a cottage and says, I have to hide out in this cottage. Oh, hello, comely lass who just happens to live here. Oh, of course, she'll let him in because he's Tony Curtis and he's wearing fringe jackets and his like yellow leather writing gloves. <laughs> has mutton chops that can sever heads. And he has to take a shower and we actually see the process of what it's like to strip while having the suitcase stri- like chained to your wrist. And it's really complicated. And it's actually kind of complicated. It's a comedy routine worthy of Chaplin. Like yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. really funny. <laughs> All right, so that's that's yeah. our best guest star award. Mm. Now moving on to best supporting actor. Now we do not divide this up by gender. Mm. Well, as, as we haven't been. No, we haven't been. Mm. I find that uh, arbitrary and annoying, so we're just going <laughs> to uh, do the whole thing. Our number 5 a runner-up for Best Supporting Actor, regular in a show, mm-hmm. is a- another one where it's just the show would have been interminable without them. <laughs> Lisa Zane mm-hmm. in Roar. Lisa Zane is the only person who gives any real life to this show. With any consistency. Well, anyway, I, like, I mean, there are like flashes here and there. And Vera yeah. Farmiga's in it, but she's not re- swinging any hefty axes in this She's one. not she's, asked to do much. There's a good episode um, where we find out that she's Christian and they have to find like the last real writings of Christ and it turns mm-hmm. out it's like a boring letter to his brother. Yeah. <laughs> That's it? Like, this hey. is what we were doing? Hey, bro, found a, found a cool, cool beer. You should try it. Anyway, remember love, I'm Jesus. Love, love Jesus. Um, yeah, Lisa, like, it's all about, you know, this ancient Irish tribe, and they're trying to gather... 
Heath Ledger is traveling through the land of, trying a, of to a ruined Ireland, tribes. trying to assemble all the tribes so they can take down the Roman occupiers. Lisa Zane is the Roman occupier. Mm-hmm. She has an evil wizard in her employ, but she's always in charge. Yep. Well, <laughs> after a while, he starts getting in charge, and then she ends up having to turn on him, mm-hmm. and it becomes really satisfying. And locks him in an Iron Maiden eventually. But, like, but, yeah. we, we're introduced to her like naked taking a mud bath while her like mm-hmm. Roman general husband like comes in and has a really long speech, mm-hmm. and then he leaves, and then the the guy she was having sex with in the mud bath like comes up for air. He's been holding his breath for like eight minutes at that point. At the end of the pilot, the general dies and she just takes over the whole army mm. and you buy it. Because she's Lisa Zane and she has that confidence. Lisa Zane is I one think of Lisa those... Zane is really underrated as a performer we in general. We keep running into her and everything. She's always good. She mm. held her own as uh, the lead uh, sort of foil for profit in profit. Right. She was one of the better uh, uh, actors who popped up in Human Target. Like anytime Lisa Zane shows up in anything, you're just like, oh, we're good. Good. Yeah, she oh. was great in Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. Like, <laughs> well, let's not let's not go too far. She's as good as anyone could be in Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare. All right. it, she's one of those actors who really frustrates me. And didn't become a bigger star. Yeah, and, but she's still doing stuff. Apparently, she's got a successful music career as well. Good for her. She's awesome. And mm. man, you'd think with Heath Ledger and Vera Farmiga starring in Roar, Roar would be this, oh, wow, Heath Ledger and Vera Farmiga, they were so good way back when. No, nope, it's the Lisa Zane show, <laughs> and they're lucky to be there. <laughs> Our number four, mm. another great, great, great fun mm. supporting actor who brings a lot of life to a show that would still have been good, but probably would have been unnecessarily dark. We're talking about John Glover in Brimstone. Yeah. Well, they try to give a little bit of quirk to the lead character in Brimstone, mm-hmm. who is a, a man who died, went to hell, and now has to go back to Earth as the devil's minion, essentially, to yeah. track down evildoers. Uh, escape and, souls from hell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, in every episode, he has one or two conversations with Satan to get, you know, to give him the story. It's like, okay, here's your plot for the day. Yeah. And Satan is played by the wonderful John Glover. And John Glover can be very, very threatening. So it's very nice to see him in the devil, but as the devil. But more than anything, he's very, very funny. And he has a charm to him. This is the guy who played an egotistical, rich asshole, uh, Donald Trump impersonator in Gremlins 2. And you loved him in every scene. He's so he's good su- in that. He's supposed to be the villain, and you love him. I think Joe Dante was really trying to undo a lot with Gremlins 2. <laughs> Gremlins 2 is kind of a brilliant movie when you start thinking about it. Gremlins 2 is genius. Yeah, yeah. Gremlins 2 is an absolutely genius motion picture. <laughs> I stand by that in every way. Every every single detail is not extraneous, even though it feels like just monster vomit the movie. Did you ever see uh, the Key and Peele sketch about uh, Gremlins 2? No. Oh, it's great. It's just basically, uh, it's a meeting uh-huh. at a studio. I'm like, okay, everybody, we're going to start working on Gremlins 2. I'm excited about this. You're excited about this. Uh-huh. Now, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We basically just need to do Gremlins again. And then Jordan Peele shows up, and he's just like, hey, everybody, I work for the studio now. I hear you're working on Gremlins 2. I want everyone to do an exercise with me. Come up with the craziest Gremlin you can think of. <laughs> this is an exercise. Okay, how about one that's, I don't know, made of vegetables? Oh, yeah. I love it. Oh, it's going to teach kids survival about eating vegetables what about a spider gremlin i love it and it just goes around everyone coming up with the dumbest gremlins imaginable and those are all in the final movie. that's like the twist at the end is that's all, all this shit is in the movie and it's still brilliant but, so, yeah, but that but that's that's this is just a, a way of uh getting getting back to john glover and uh 
I've seen John Glover in indie films. I've seen him in mainstream films. He had a great cameo in uh, RoboCop 2 mm. as, a, as a pitch man. He was like in a commercial for a, a, a lethal car alarm. Mm. <laughs> He's just another one of those actors who, as soon as yeah. you see them in a movie, you know you're going to be great. Even in mm. Batman and Robin, when he That's plays right. the Floronic was, Man. <laughs> He's great. I thought he just played a mad scientist in that one. And, and the and comic books, he was a bigger character, and he was called the Floronic Man. Oh. Well, he's just, That's why he's dealing with all just, the plant stuff. He's the other plant supervillain that they had. Oh, God. <laughs> I had no idea until yeah. this moment. The Floronic Man. Uh, in the movie, he's just a mad scientist with wild hair who gets to cackle a lot and say things. I'm sorry, but now you get to die. Ah! And then he pushes him with Thurman into a vat. And then he played Lex Luthor's father on Smallville, and he was great. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's a great, funny, heavy. And so, as such, he's perfect in, in the role of Satan in Brimstone. And he can make any exposition mm. sound good. And, and later and then, on, he the, gets to play a double role. Yeah, in the last episode, uh, It's a Hell of a Life, which is the It's a Wonderful Life episode, uh, we get to sort of look back over the protagonist's uh, good doings and evil doings as led by two different John Glovers. One is Satan and one is presumably, I don't think it's a named angel, but he's an angel yeah. of some kind. Yeah. And the idea is that human beings can't, mm. you know, th- and, th- these creatures are so bizarre to us that we see them all as looking alike. Yeah. Um, so in our protagonist's eyes, they're both played by the same guy. And, and he confuses them and he's not convinced for a long time. And he's so good. He's and, so good at both. Because he plays that sort of gentle, benevolent character really, really 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 well mm-hmm. just as well as he plays a demon yeah he's fantastic it's really impressive i right. love john glover all right our number three mm-hmm. is one of a couple of great actors in a really bad show <laughs> uh we're gonna be talking about the great avery schreiber in <laughs> my mother the car he plays captain manzini mm-hmm. the wild billionaire who is desperate to buy my mother the car and Ooh. will stop at nothing to get the car and he is always in his like World War One flying ace outfit. Like he, he's he has the giant handlebar mustache. Mm-hmm. He's got his driving coat and a scarf and the driving gloves. And the cap. Yeah, and he's he's willing. He's he's gonna any moment gonna get behind the wheel of a very fast car. And he wants the <laughs> 1928 Porter because it's a collector's item. It's possessed by the soul of Dick, uh, Jerry Van Dyke's mother. Hijinks ensue. Uh, <laughs> but here's the thing but with my mother: the car. It, it's it's a broad, stupid show. We don't like it. <laughs> I have to stress that. My mother, the car. We, we like there's the a, theme. We like the theme song. There's a like couple Manzini. There's a couple of good things in it. I love. We, she didn't get uh, end up winning uh, 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 the award, but I got to give a shout out to Maggie Pierce as the Ma- long suffering wife. Maggie Pierce is good. She's so good. And Southern is great as the voice of the car. And there's a couple of episodes I like, but for the most part, my mother, the car is strange and weird, mm. and at least vaguely disturbing, and it doesn't and, work. And all the jokes are like boilerplate, old fashioned sitcom that are just boring as dry white toast but that's the weird captain thing manzini it. however understands that this is like more it this should be more of like a saturday morning cartoon it should be a little wackier and stranger this is a, he's playing snidely whiplash yeah i don't yeah. Even know if snidely whiplash existed by this point but he's playing snidely whiplash oh. and everyone else is in just my three sons they're oh. just in this really generic dumb sitcom and captain manzini comes in with his shrink ray <laughs> and shrinks my mother the car oh. and it's great Mm-hmm. Every time he pops up, he's not in every episode, which is a problem. He's in well, he's in a lot. He's in every other episode, it's maybe, maybe about know. half, maybe two thirds. Like mm-hmm. he's not in every episode, but almost every episode he's not in is a bad episode of my mother. <laughs> like he's just this wonderful sprightly thing. It'd mm-hmm. be like it would be like if the best part of the Flintstones was the Great Gazoo. <laughs> well, we can have some arguments there. <laughs> 
<laughs> you don't you slag on the Great Gazoo. Apologies. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I'm sorry. The Great Gazoo is one of the most obnoxious cartoon characters of all time. I forgot. <laughs> Only behind Scrappy-Doo and Chim-Chim Racer. Uh, our number two uh-huh. is a real standout uh, actor in a really, really great ensemble show. Possibly the best ensemble we've ever reviewed mm. in general. It's The show is GCB. Yeah. It stands for Good Christian Bitches. And the runner-up, our number two best supporting actor, is Miriam Shore. Oh, Miriam Shore. a sure. great <clears throat> character. She's a great character. Oh, she's, she's so much fun. really hilarious. I mean, just everybody is really funny and just really on their game in this show. And I think Miriam Shore had the most interesting backstory because she was married to... Uh, Gay man? Question mark. Mm-hmm. And uh, no question mark. Or, he's or, he's quite gay. Well, the the uh, the town didn't know. She knew. He mm-hmm. knew. And they had kind of this quiet or unspoken arrangement. They have come to terms yeah. with this, and, and it's and it's something that really you would think mm-hmm. it comes. It, they they have affairs mm-hmm. and they're fine. And they're fine. That. That's their arrangement. And they have a child and they're good with the child. Yeah, and I love that. I love their relationship. I mm-hmm. love the way she handles it. She's very professional about it. She's very resolute in it. It's a secret, but it's not something she's really like squirreling away or is ashamed of. And there's a really fantastic episode where they decide to sort of get their groove back and try to like have another kid or have sex again. And they're just not in the mood. She's too tired. He's too gay. And (laughs) they're just not into it. And they end up taking like libido enhancing drugs that make them go crazy. And it's really like not crazy with libido, just like out of their minds and they have to drink water. And it's a hilarious scene. And yet Miriam Shore brings not just the, drama needed for the secret and the richness needed for the character but she's hilarious in every scene she's in because she's wry and sarcastic yeah she's like everybody's arguing in the foreground and she'll have one cutting killer comeback like Uh from the back of the room and And she'll just steal the scene and she's a badass there's this one Mm -hmm. episode where uh they're doing a bachelorette party Mm -hmm. and part of the bachelorette party is going hunting and she is such a badass (laughs) she's shooting shit in the woods and she's like there's another episode where they need to like steal some wood off of her land to use in the perfect smoking like meat smoking (laughs) recipe the the barbecue contest episode and when Miriam Shore finds out that like they're really doing it to screw over someone she hates she like shoots a shotgun in the air and like a branch falls down and she's so cool doesn't she catch it too it's like, I don't think she shoots catches it and it. catches it in one hand I don't think she catches it oh, yeah. I would not surprise me if that's what she did but I don't think it's what she did uh, she's great mm. she's another person I'm amazed isn't a bigger star she's so much fun I, I think she'll she still has her glory she'll she has her niche find other, other Pe- roles people she's know fine. her obviously I mean she was in Hedvig like yeah. she's she's fantastic but my god she's <laughs> but uh, the number one is someone who doesn't just turn in a great performance but really surprised us because we mm. know this actor mm. is not really famous for having a lot of range. <laughs> but it turns out, in pitch, mm. Mark Paul Gosler is fantastic. <laughs> Look, he was pigeonholed. He was yeah. a teen idol, and it's hard to grow out of that. Damn right. I mean, Zac Efron did it very well. Justin mm. Timberlake, too. Few can, yeah. L- like l- poor Lindsay Lohan, for instance. Yeah. Like it's kind of like her her poor career. Um, Mark Paul Gosseler was a pretty boy. He was in Bop magazines. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he was on uh, uh, Saved by the Bell. He's just a sort of sitcom hero that didn't have a lot of credibility as an actor. I think he was in a few B movies, like monster movies, because that's just sort of the kind of work he could that, get for a while. That sounds right, but I honestly don't. I, I, I don't. He was on NYPD Blue for a while. Oh, there you go. Yeah, good mm-hmm. for him. He showed up on pitch as, like, as we we mentioned before. Uh, he, he wasn't really the 
he was sort of like like the leader of the team, not the manager, but he was the leader of the team. He was the the strongest voice. He had been he was and staring down the the possibility of being a little bit obsolete. He was sort of aging out of his of his athleticism. He brings so much damn humanity to that role, and not only to that, but gives an appropriate balance to the Kylie Bunbury part. She's really unsure of herself, and we could have made the show all about her anxiety and about her fears, and that would have been tiresome really fast. It might have even and been good, but it wouldn't it have been have, nuanced. It might, yeah, you know? exactly. It would have just been her like sitting in rooms talking about how, how much she has doubt, and then she's confident, and then she's doubtful. Mm. He offers a lot more of a pragmatic approach to that doubt. Uh, you sure you have a lot of doubt. I understand that we are a team. We're here for you. I understand when we need to pull back. I need to understand a little bit more about myself because I'm unsure of you and I have to learn how to be a better leader. It is such a great dynamic. He's the most interesting character on the show, really. Yeah. And he just knocks pitch, knocks it out of the park. Hey, oh. but if you think about it and it's easy to project this, and I don't know how true this is or if he thought about this, but mm. when you look at his character, He's a guy who was a was a big star mm-hmm. early on, and now at this point he's settling down and he's thinking about taking a job as just a sports commentator. And you think about it, he was this huge star in Saved by the Bell. Mm-hmm. He's a recognizable teen idol. And now he's a working actor, and he, is, he has done that transition a bit. Mm-hmm. He probably knows a lot of the emotional beats that his character is going through, and it's easy to imagine that really making his yeah, character and pitch yeah, yeah. that much more rich. It's a really, really great performance. I really There's, like Pitch a lot. I don't like all of his subplots about sort of his relationship drama. That's not oh, so interesting. Especially or, yeah. when they try to like make him like and Kylie Bunbury a thing like right at the like, end. Yeah, yeah, this one episode it is like where really it's like, reads no, that's, false. It really doesn't play at that, all. That wasn't what your relationship was, guys. Yeah, Stop. No, the writers so didn't weird. need to do that. Like some some writer like who was inexperienced in the show came in at the last minute. Hey, what if we made him kiss? No. No, no, no one wants that. <laughs> We're good. Yeah, Mark Pogbark. Mark Paul Gosselaar. Good job. Yeah, good job. Congratulations. You have won the Best Supporting Actor Award. Now, uh, the Best Lead Actor. Uh-huh. Uh, another one where we had a lot of great people. This is, a, this is a category in which Sammy Davis Jr. didn't make our top five. <laughs> That's pretty great. Uh-huh. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, who did make our top five? Let's start with our number five mm-hmm. for Best Lead Actor. Another actor who made an otherwise show great mm-hmm. whenever he was doing his thing. Corey Stoll in Law and Order Los Angeles. <laughs> it's a lesser Law and Order, to be sure. Yes. Um, they they played with the premise too much. Mm-hmm. They didn't really focus enough. They, it was they didn't understand how Los Angeles worked at all. At all. Uh, it was yeah New York's version of L.A. So if you're from L.A., it's frustrating AF and. Yeah. Uh, the characters weren't interesting enough to set it apart from the other Law and Orders. The other Law and Orders, we already had them. Corey Stoll, however, <laughs> is hilarious. Sarcastic, wisecracking cop, mm-hmm. but he, believable. And he's one of the few people in the show who really feels at home in Los Angeles. Mm. When he talks about things, when he talks about like the band he had in college, <laughs> Did, when he, he talks he about... Op- he opened for The Offspring, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a very Los Angeles That's an thing LA to say. Thing, yeah. yeah, when he talks about uh, uh, the local like restaurant scene, even though he gets the locations wrong, he's very into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the the best scene in the whole thing. If you ask me, is this the Tito's scene? No, but that's a good <laughs> one. That, you're talking about the scene where he shows up, saying, "Hey, I got burritos from Tito's," and I'm like, "No one gets the burritos at Tito's. It's called Tito's Tacos. You they, get the tacos. They get the tacos. You the get bur- the tacos because it's a dollar for thirty of them. It's stupid. No one. Ah, we'd all be disappointed." 
in you if you did that. <laughs> no, I'd be like, hey, I went to Starbucks. I didn't get anyone any coffee, but I did get you all like a, the, bo- the hard boiled eggs. What? <laughs> yeah, they have them, but I, what? I went to Stan's Donuts and got us all cartons of orange juice. It's like. <laughs> Get the donuts, dummy! The one for me is when they're... Because, you know, the thing with Law & Order is he plays one of the cops, and every time the cop is interrogating someone, mm. they're always doing some funny bit of business. Yeah. Makes more sense in New York than it does in Los Angeles, where people will stop... Actually, actually talk to a cop. Actually talk to you, like, yeah. oh my god, I'm interested. But the one, the best one is this old lady who's trying to get an orange out of her pool. That's a grapefruit. It's a grapefruit, you're right. <laughs> There's a grapefruit in her pool, and she can't get it with a skimmer. Mm. And they're trying to interview her, but she's teaching to the skimmer, and she finally just hands the skimmer to Corey Stoll and says, Hey, you do it, young man. And Corey Stoll just cannot hide his disdain. He just slaps it into the pool. And, and walks off camera. Drags <laughs> it behind him like a kid who doesn't want to do his chores. He is so damn funny. <laughs> he livens the show up mm. so much. He's in, great in a show that's so dreary. I it's mean, Law and Orders are all kind of dreary, but you know, there's a couple of good episodes. Yeah. But yeah, it's not a good show. It was a good <laughs> show. Uh, okay, mm. number four, mm. an actor who neither of us really loved. Like he was a big star. People know him. He's in some classic movies, mm-hmm. but I don't think either of us were huge fans of Tony Curtis until we saw The Persuaders. Well, I was a fan of Tony Curtis. Uh, I think I think everybody's fine. everybody's a, a fan a fan of Tony Curtis to an extent, you know, because you've seen Spartacus and and you've seen Sweet Smell of Success. And, like he's good in those. I just never like. Oh, I have to see everything he, Tony Curtis has ever. He's done. even I've great in some of those. He's great yeah. in some like it hot for goodness sake. And uh, you know, he's just legit movie star. But I feel like. Well, I saw him as a funny comedian, and I saw him as a good actor, mm-hmm. I never really understood sort of that it quality, yeah. that sort of movie star uh, shine. What's the appeal? That, that people talk about when they talk about movie stars, until I saw him in The Persuaders, a TV show <laughs> that he did kind of, not late in his in his life, he's in his, I think it was uh, mid-40s when he made it. Yeah, but his, his star was on the wane a bit. Yeah, it he, was still a good role for him, though. It wasn't like an embarrassing part. But he wasn't like a 21-year-old on the rise. Yeah. And uh, first of all, he did all of his own stunts and all of his own fighting. So he's in great shape because he does some pretty damn impressive things like leaping from car to car and doing backflips and really elaborate stage combat with swords and fist fights. And he sells to me... The fact that he is, perhaps under his skin, some sort of masculinity god. <laughs> I mean, The Persuaders is, is it's a, a show that's built on testosterone, for goodness sake. It is about these kind of men who are all testicle. And when we, when we see them in action, it's like, yeah, you know, if you're, if you're a man watching, yeah, this is what it's like to be a man. Dress that well. Do that capably. You see Tony Curtis doing this at age 46, it it it's it's like amplified by ten. It's, it's like, really I, I gotta start doing sit ups. Like, <laughs> you know, what? I'm not. I am not yet the age he was in the Persuaders. There's still time for me. <laughs> I can still become as cool as Tony Curtis you was. Got to wear riding gloves for no reason. Always. What do you mean no reason? <laughs> they are the reason. The, the question is, why aren't we wearing riding gloves right now? I can't afford the good ones. <laughs> Nobody can. Ah, 
my kingdom for the wardrobe. Not even guys. Tony Curtis could. His testosterone just had them grow around his hands. He glanded them out of his skin. I, I just want the wardrobe guy from the Persuaders to be my best friend. <laughs> well, like, that's Roger Moore, and he passed away. Oh, damn it. He, well, he designed his own clothes. I'm not sure how much he designed otherwise. All right, our number three mm. best lead actor is Michael Ely in Almost Human. Yeah. Another guy who should be the biggest movie star on the planet. And it, it baffles me that he's not, because how? he's really talented. He's really charming. He's damn good looking. Yeah. He just hasn't had that big movie role. I think that's the problem. Mm. Like, he hasn't had... He's been in big movies. He's been in successful movies about mm. last night made money. But, like, he But that wasn't, a, like, a knockover hit yeah, or anything. I don't know what it... He needs to be, like, a superhero. Like, that's mm. what he needs. He, someone needs to cast him in one of those type yeah. of roles. And he have, would... Have him play the... I don't know, the Flash. Or the Green Lantern or something. something. Do it. Like, because he's so damn good. And in Almost Human, again, we talked about it already, he plays a robot who's more human than his human partner. And he does so much with such an odd role. His emotional (laughs) vulnerability is off the charts, and he's really just sympathetic and sweet. He has all of these weird robot quirks that he just nails every single time, every single odd thing. Like, when he just talks about how, like, yeah, well, we were talking, I set you up a dating profile. Yeah, like, in, with his in-brain computer. Yeah. My, my favorite bit is when, uh, like, the, the solar chargers go down in the robot police bay where they uh-huh. charge up the robots at night so he's not fully charged he's running low on batteries and that gets him like really cantankerous like he hasn't had his coffee so he starts like cussing at people and threatening people kind of randomly in weird ways it's like how are you doing today i'm going to murder your face sorry i'm not fully charged <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious he's great he's great he yes. sells every single part of mm. this really difficult role and he makes it just it should have been iconic and mm. instead People didn't watch it, and it's well, a damn shame. People watched it; it just was too expensive. We, we talked about that on the Almost Human show. It was not it was, enough people. Watched not enough it. people watched it because every human being on the planet needed to watch it for it to be a hit. Yeah. Uh, our our runner up, our number two uh, best lead actor uh, for the last year, uh, is an international treasure. I think the planet is better for having this person mm-hmm. acting in it and singing in it. Kristen Chenoweth in GCB. Oh, good God. Yes. She's so mm. fucking funny. Uh, she, I mean, she, she's not the lead actor, but she really is. Hey, she's um, a co-lead. She's a co-lead. Uh, it's, Leslie it's really Bibb about, is ostensibly the lead, but Kristen Chenoweth Leslie is... Leslie Bibb and Kristen Chenoweth are, have the, the, the two main roles. One is the, one is the heroine, one is the villainess, and they just sort of... Their relationship is not only comically broad, but also completely believable. Uh, Leslie Bibb moves back to her small town that she moved, very aggressively moved away from when she was young. Kristen Chenoweth is now the queen bee who feels threatened. And she sells queen bee with every gesture, mm-hmm. with every facial tick, with every petty little joke that she slips out of the side of her mouth. And I'm I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> You do not want to get on her shit list, like, at all, ever. But the great thing is that she actually has, in that character, a great sense of humor Mm. about herself. Like, there's this great gag about, like, she's had work done. Mm. And there's a great bit where she's trying to get information about Leslie, uh, about whether or not Leslie Bibb's husband is actually dead. Mm. They think maybe he's alive and it's all some kind of big insurance scam. And she's just trying to, and her way of getting in with Leslie Bibb is just like, hey, can you tell me about, like... Uh, your your husband's funeral was it was it an open casket? What what did they do? I'm always trying to look more lifelike. <laughs> she gets well, to play such a broad character, and it's really great to see a broad mm-hmm. character who is broad in a way that is 
convincing. Well, and it's humane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort like, of. I believe that mm. she exists. Mm. You know, and you don't always get that with like mm. big, big, silly characters. Although she does get to ham it up a little over the top in, in a few notable scenes, which are completely acceptable because they're hilarious. Like you brought this up when we reviewed GCB. There's a bit where somebody accuses her of being dramatic <laughs> and she's facing away from the character. She whips her head around and says, dramatic, <laughs> like playing to the back row in that one shot. It's just terrific. You can picture in the script it said. Like dramatic brackets, dramatic, (laughs) and then dramatic. (laughs) God, she's a treasure. But Hmm. it feels like a cheat, but it's not. Our number one is actually a tie Mm -hmm. between two people who make very difficult material Mm. work incredibly well, and they need each other. Yeah, you couldn't have one without the other. Eliza Bennett and Taylor Dearden in Sweet Vicious. Oh golly, what a great show! Um, (laughs) Sweet Vicious. Made me cry on several occasions. Me too. Uh, Mostly because of the strength of these two young women. Uh, It is difficult subject matter that they handle very, very well after the second episode. Yeah, it (laughs) takes them a bit of time to find their footing. The first two episodes, the tone is way, way off. Episode three, it's one of the greats. And And um, it stays there for the rest of the series. And these are two very, very different types of people, these two characters that they play. One is kind of a... Uh, kind of a sl- slacker, loser, drug dealer, in, drug dealer, in, intelligent, ambitious, but well, intelligent, but not ambitious. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's she has a lot of agency and a lot of wherewithal, but not a lot of ambition. She doesn't really long for much more than simple hedonist pleasures. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side of the equation, you have a character who's very uh, eager, very go gettery, very clean, and. Um, we realize that they do ha- share something in common because it's something all women share, and it's. The cult, this sort of toxic culture that they live in, in on their college campus, that is very sexually cruel to women, and they experience it in different ways. Uh, one of them experiences it a lot more vividly than the other, but they do find that they have this in common. And watching them forced by circumstance to each other is a really fantastic opportunity to see how they can actually relate as friends as opposed to just compatriots Mm -hmm. and the way their friendship evolves over the course of the show is one of the most natural and one of the most moving things we've seen uh in the course of cancel too soon and it's fascinating that it feels natural because in in many ways sweet vicious Mm -hmm. is a vigilante show yeah they they put on masks and beat up like men who sexually assault women throughout the course of the series and mm-hmm. at times they play with that and there are big action sequences and scenes about protecting a secret identity and mm-hmm. uh, um, and all of that stuff plays really really well but you're right like it, it would be gauche at best <laughs> if they didn't have this central humanity mm-hmm. and if they didn't have actors who could play the humor who could play the action but who could also play the seriousness mm-hmm. of what they're going through and when honestly and they do and when i think of the show i actually don't th- although the vigilante stuff is kind of the hook it's the selling mm-hmm. point of the a lot show of it's fun. and a lot of it's fun and the action is is well done and the secret identity stuff can be kind of wacky when i think of the show i think of their relationship and mm-hmm. i think of uh the, the sexual politic because that stuff is done so damn well and it, it if it weren't f- i can't even picture other actors in this role That's in these roles they kind of it. define them and it's so rare that we get really great shows that are about friendships. 
Usually when we see shows mm-hmm. about friendships along the lines of something like GCB, where it's very antagonistic or there's like broad gestures, this is much more about little everyday things that they find they have in common. And, you know, when you look at two friends, they're not going to have big dramatic moments. There aren't big moments in, in friendships. It's a series of those little everyday things. And I like seeing that portrayed in a healthy way in movies and on TV. And I think this Sweet Fish is, does it the best I've you could see it in just about anywhere. Awesome. Well, okay. Our next category mm. is weirdest series. <laughs> whether it's good or whether it's bad is inconsequential. Mm. What happens over the course of the show is we find TV shows that are probably too weird to live. And mm. we're actually surprised they got made at all. <laughs> and when here, is, here are our top five mm. weirdest shows we reviewed mm. in the last year. Our number five was the pilot episode for Bates Motel. <laughs> okay. Turning Psycho into a series. They did it. It was successful. It was called Base Motel. It's a good show. Uh, Vera Farmiga played, uh, was it Norma Bates? Norma Bates. Norma Bates. Uh, previously played by Olivia Hussey. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, when you're doing it in the 80s, and you're not going to tell the Norman Bates story, mm-hmm. how do you tell the story of Bates Motel? First off, you're stupid for not telling the Norman Bates story. Yeah, first of all, uh, what? So what we're going to do is we have, we're going to do a Psycho TV series, mm-hmm. and we're going to make it about a guy Norman Bates knew in a mental institution, and when he gets out, he's going to inherit the Bates Motel. Because, oh, because Norman Bates is dead. Norman Bates is dead. Mm-hmm. This guy. It's Bud, just, just some guy. Just some guy. Played by Bud Court. Played by Bud Court. Probably would have made a good Norman Bates, quite frankly, so it's weird. He <laughs> oh, gosh, he would have been a great Norman Bates. Yeah. I mean, he, it was too young, but yeah. If you were going to do a younger Norman Bates, you could have gotten away with it. He inherits Bates Motel, teams up with Laurie Petty, they renovate the place for about an hour. And then in the last, like, 20 minutes or so, mm. it turns out the place is haunted by the ghost of Jason Bateman. And he, not not just Jason Bateman. Oh, but a whole bunch of other but like Jason Bateman and a bunch of fifties ghost Bobby Soxers that overtake the Bates Motel. Yeah, and uh, I guess their money is good because you know Bud Court is it's actually enough to accepting. Keep, that's right. It's enough to keep the the yeah. motel in business. Yeah, so they have real money. It's go, really confusing. Ghosts appear with real cash. Yeah, check into the motel. And they all converge on the one human tenant. Yeah, a li- living human. A tenant. living human tenant. To who just appears in the last 20 minutes of the show. She's not a regular character. Mm-hmm. She's a human tenant comes to Bates Motel, checks in, suicidal thoughts. Then all of these ghost Bobby Soxers, including Jason Bateman, appear in appear to her and say, you know what? Things didn't turn out so well for us, but they can turn out well for you. And she leaves feeling much better. And the final shot is Bud Court talking to the camera as it pulls away from Bates Motel saying, maybe you'll stay here someday and you'll get a little hope too. What? So the premise of your show, as far as I can tell, is that it's an anthology series where people come to stay at Bates Motel and then ghosts show up to pay you and help out your tenant. What? Okay. With a a little tweaks, that might be a good anthology series. Why are you attaching Norman Bates to this at all? Norman Bates is is a murderer. Yeah. This is a horror movie. No way. Here's the thing. There's you could do a haunted hotel anthology anthology show. I've heard worse ideas for anthology shows. Okay. If you call it Bates Motel, people are going to want it to have something to do with Psycho, so they're going to be pissed. <laughs> it's a stupid thing, and All it had a good have, cast. Yeah. There's actually good people in it. It's just mm. so weird. 
when Laurie Petty like plays like she she beams in from a like a cartoon dimension. She's wearing she, a chicken suit. She shows in the first up in a, scene. In, a, in a chicken suit and she's cracking wise and I think she's just sort of like floats through the air in the background in one scene. She's just she's like a, a oh golly a Edward in Cowboy Bebop. Have you yeah, ever seen Cowboy Bebop? Edward, yeah. yeah, just sort of like just nutty little kid floating around in the background it has nothing to do with anything. It's like what? what? This and, is Psycho. And there were weirder shows. Yeah, and let's that's talk, only the fifth weirdest. Let's talk about the fourth weirdest. This is a show called We've already talked talked about it tequila and bonetti <laughs> again perfectly good straight cop show new you, york cop moves to la that's a good show that's it's fine. not a bad Marishka idea for show. is fine there the lead actor is fine all the actors are fine but talking dog you throw in a talking dog and you're not sure what the hell is going and the on the dog has dream sequences about winning oscars mm-hmm. and the the and talks about sniffing butts. And a lot of he eats a lot of burritos. That's right. And burritos there's psychics, thing, and, and there's like snipers who are killing surfers. So if if you're gonna have that element in a cop show, clearly that's a satire. You would think like this is a cop show. We're gonna satirize cop shows by having a talking dog sort of give running commentary. It's like Garfield. <laughs> Yeah, you know, John Arbuckle lives the most boring life imaginable, and Garfield runs color commentary, hence making it amusing. Mm-hmm. So. You'd think Tequila would be that. He'd sort of comment on how boring and tedious cop shows are. But the cops are interesting, and their cases are the stories of the episodes. Yeah. And often the dog doesn't even help in the case. He's just sort of there in the background. It's a cataclysm of tone, and you can tell it right from the beginning, because the plot is uh, Bonetti is Mm. in L.A. because he shot a child in the line of duty, and the kid died. Mm. And now he's in a wacky show. Yeah, with the a opening, talking dog. The opening credits are him shooting a child, cradling her in his arms as he's and dying and crying. The, the image literally, like, like we're seeing the flip, like a parallel universe. The image like turns over in front of us on the screen, and then the music changes, and it's yeah. like, child is dead. It's like, no, wait, what the fuck is going on? We just saw a really horrific murder, and it never stops being weird. It never equalizes. It never picks a tone. It's always shifts back and forth on a fucking dime yeah. and you can never tell it's bizarre <laughs> you, you know what the show needed like a ted Raimi or you know just somebody just off the wall to, yeah. bow, to make sure everything's strange something uh, and that wasn't the weirdest show <laughs> that's, that's the fourth weirdest show the third weirdest show we just reviewed it mm. white dwarf <laughs> White Dwarf. Because uh, uh, it, it's one of it's a show that we and we challenged ourselves. We can't really sum it up quickly. There's no way. You're There's gonna no leave way. Shit so yeah, out. It's, it's the distant future, but it's kind of a steampunk future. So it's like everybody's dressed in Victoria era garb, and mm-hmm. uh, a really hotshot surgeon goes to a frontier planet where it is night on one half of the world all the time and day on one half of the world on, on, all the time divided very sharply there's no dawn or dusk it's yep. just black and white uh he takes starts serving under um uh paul winfield mm-hmm. paul winfield yeah. who can like and paul winfield dig has, his hands into people's stomachs and pull out giant worms yeah and, and you can steal people's souls with his breath 
He, he can steal your soul with his breath. He roars at them and they die. There is a gigantic alien beast fish monster. Mm-hmm. That who, pukes in your mouth and that, makes you immortal. Yeah, he, he has a punishment. Like a, a, a very penis-like protrusion comes out of his throat and shoves it down your throat. And he mm-hmm. shoots liquid down your throat and that's all kind of gross. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's an ocean of blood and if you scream at it, sometimes they give you children back. So the, well, the, your soul goes out over the, the blood red ocean, mm-hmm. and if you scream your name out onto the blood red ocean, the soul will come back. And there's a lot, a lot mm. of tetherball. There's a lot of tetherball. There's a ro- and all the costumes are out of like a high school closet. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a king who uh, actually like wears like a Burger King crown. Like it's weird. It's weird. There's an immortal princess. Uh, the, and I'm sure there's other things. Oh, oh, there's a shapeshifter. We forgot the shapeshifter. We forgot. We, oh, we were going to forget something. And the cre- really creepy identical old twins. Little identical yeah. twin. Uh, and ide- yeah, two identical twins, but one looks like she's 80. And yeah, then there's a shapeshifting boy. And none of it has anything to do with anything. And the shapeshifting boy is also psychic. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. White dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody said, here's your check. <laughs> Throw money at it. Mm. And that wasn't the weirdest show. <laughs> My number two, and I'm amazed we found a weirder show than this, by the way. Uh-huh. We're going to talk a little bit about TerrorVision. Oh, golly, TerrorVision. TerrorVision is more weird in its very existence I'm amazed than it is in anything it. in its content. I'm yeah. amazed we found We just needed something short. Like, that was it. We were going to do something longer, and then something <laughs> happened, and we didn't have time to watch it. Mm-hmm. And we were just like, we need to find something short to review this week. I found out that there was a short-lived anthology horror series that aired on Lifetime in the 80s called TerrorVision. It has nothing to do with the movie now, called TerrorVision. And when you say in the 80s, that's as specific as we can get. No one Because knows. it could have been 1981. Judging by the video effects, it could have been around 86 or 87. I suspect it's mid-80s. It looks, looks around mid-80s, but there's no information on this. We, on our episode, we had to say it's from 1980 like in Mega Man. Yeah. Like, it's... It, People ask for 1980X t-shirts. We should probably just do 198X t-shirt. Do it. Okay, so the thing with Terravision is that they're really short episodes. They basically only have enough time to tell you what the premise of the show is and then end. Oh, and then there's the, the, the punchline. But there's rarely a punchline. Yeah, the, first episode, a punchline. the first episode is a kid who tells his parents there's a monster in his closet. Then it turns out there's a monster in his closet. The end. And That's it. it. Mm-hmm. No what? No tension, no back and forth, no ambiguity at all. Yeah. Oh god. Then there's like there's one where a guy kills a guy in his apartment and, and then, then there's a guy like, is in the mirror and the guy ends up in a taxi with the guy driving it. The end. <laughs> We're done. What a twist. Yeah, there's a woman who yeah. gets a modeling gig at a at a store. Yeah. Turns out they turn her into a mannequin. Boom, the end. The uh, <laughs> That's right, the mannequin episode. Boom. Um boom, sunglasses. Boom. They uh Again, these are fine premises for, like, uh, Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone episodes, had they been expanded and and also written well. Mm-hmm. Um, these were not expanded. They were, what's the opposite? Contracted? Yeah. <laughs> De-expanded? They were, uh, uh, and they were, they were, they were reduced to the lowest common denominator. And I, I'm not sure how, if they were written like on the set while they were shooting, like scene one is going and they're writing scene two right in that moment. It feels like they filmed a flashcard. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like they, they put the beats on flashcards and they just filmed them. They filmed it really quick. It was filmed on video, like on VHS. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really, really low quality. 
And it's like having a nightmare. Like if you are l- up late and you left the TV on and you woke up and Terror Vision was on, mm-hmm. you would think you were dreaming. Yeah, you would not be sure you watched that tonight. And again, mm. there's like six episodes or something mm. and they're like 10, 15 minutes each tops. It's just this surreal experience of almost television. <laughs> like you're just like, is this is this television? Like, like someone seriously, like night someone flight needs, wouldn't air something like this. Like like Shout Factory or Vinegar Syndrome need to take these episodes and need to put them out as an anthology movie or something. Mm. They need to be seen. It just because like the fuck was the <laughs> the guy went to the dentist and the dentist was Dracula. Boom! Dr. Acula. Or Boom. was it Dr. A. Cula? It was Dr. A. Cula. Yeah, Dr. A. Cula. Yeah. <laughs> and get it! Just... Do you get it? It's <laughs> the kind of twist a fifth grader would write. It's just so stupid. Terrorvision! <laughs> but nothing. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> nothing. The only show we've ever encountered that was weirder <laughs> than this is The 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage. And it's neck and neck It's for pretty me. close. Are, yeah. Nothing is weirder than Steel Justice. <laughs> the only reason 100 Lives of Blackjack Savage is weirder than Steel Justice is it lasted past the pilot. Steel Justice didn't last past the pilot. If Steel Justice had multiple episodes about a cop mm. in the future teaming up with an immortal time traveler with the super human ability to turn a small thing into a big thing who uses it on the robot toy that his son's <laughs> soul possesses to mm. turn it into a giant robot fire-breathing dinosaur to fight bad guys who are stealing ice. Mm. Also, Joan Chen is in it. Here, uh, and Arlie Ermey. And Arlie Ermey is in it. Here's your check. <laughs> uh, how much? Don't come back until uh, all this money has been spent. Yeah. <laughs> Every last penny this of it. This is a live action mm. expensive ex- pilot yeah. for a primetime series. It's a big primetime series. They they clearly spent a lot on like production design. It was all very uh, blade runnery. Everything's dark and noiry and there's a lot of projected images in the back. Um they went into the drama of this main cop and how he lost his son and it's not I don't think ever really explained how his like he and his son together built a dinosaur robot it's like a toy and somehow the son's soul goes into the robot but it's not like the son's memories it's just sort of the son's soul is what's powering the robot it's like soul battery but but it has sort of like a streak of righteousness because it scares off bad guys mm-hmm. that break into the apartment to try to plant bombs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it bites a bomb and takes it and out it, into an alleyway and mm. drops the bomb and then rolls back into the apartment with anyone noticing. Okay, so you're a cop and you have a sentient robot dinosaur. Okay, mix match partner show. I'm with you. <laughs> it's possessed by the soul of his dead son. Uh, that's that's far fetched, but okay. You start throwing in the time traveling wizards and you've lost me. <laughs> Because there's a time traveling. I'm not sure if he's a time traveler or just incredibly long lived. It was unclear to me. They, they, there's an expression where putting a hat on a hat, yeah, just adding an extra thing. You put a hat on a hat store. Like you just at that point, it's like we get it. It put a silly hat on a silly hat is what yeah. it did. And they both have big feathers and they can't balance off each other. And this is a strained metaphor, but. Uh, yeah, th- there's a time-traveling wizard who teaches him these weird meditation techniques, and he's able to... He's also able to, like, project his mind into the robot, I think. Mm. Is, was that an element, or am I making that he part He has up? to summon his inner pain in order to make the small right. robot into and, a big and, robot. Yeah, and he can, he can make the robot grow, and the robot does his bidding, and now it's a giant robot. And presumably, the premise of the show was he was going to be able to do this on the regular. Yeah. Like, there's just going to be a giant robot dinosaur fighting crime around town, and it's controlled by this angst-ridden cop on the street with wizard powers. That's, that's- 
that's that's an episode of The Tick. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's <laughs> I was about to say. This that's is, not a feature like, primetime show. Not even uh, like an ironic Saturday morning cartoon would approach that. Yeah, yeah. It's fucking... And, and The Tick had a guy with a pig for a leg. So... <laughs> <laughs> There's some weird shit on that show, man. I love that show so much. All right. We're, we're, we're coming yeah. up to the end here. We need to talk about the worst the worst series we reviewed. Oh, we saw some stinkers. Oh, we see stuff mm. that would that would turn your hair white <laughs> if you had to watch it. We've heard, we've heard talked to some people who actually like try to watch some of the shows we watch mm. while we watch them. Usually they're filled with regret. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for trying to follow along. Do not try this at home. Mm. Wait until we tell you if it's any good. Let me just wait tell you, seriously. Um. You know when you do not want to sit through mm. some of the shit we mm. sit through. You you can see the Flash. That's good. That's a good yeah. show. Seek that one. I think that's on Netflix. Even you fact, can watch it. There, there were more than five. Mm. There were more than five. Uh, there's a show I wanted to put it. We, we debated on number five. You mm. won it. I'm just going to give a quick shout out to what I wanted to put on here because uh, for, for, uh, for worst show. Uh, yeah, who's afraid of Diana Prince? Which kind of doesn't count because it was more like a pitch reel. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it's, the and, the pitch they had for a 1960s Wonder Woman show and the campy vein a la Batman uh, was so wrong headed and uncomfortable and it, unfunny and insulting it, 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 it banged solely on sexist humor it's really not and, good and, at all and and wonder woman was supposed to ter- be turned into this sort of like like bumbling oaf yeah who who thought she was attractive even though she was not and her mm. mother was this you know, trying to get her married and mm. it's just it's really <laughs> not funny and 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 uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm laughing because i'm laughing at it and an unofficial way. tie there just yeah. a quick shout out to the 1970s failed pilot for wonder woman not the good one with linda carter the bad one the boring one which is so boring yeah. how do you make a boring wonder woman the same way they make a boring doctor strange it happened a lot in yeah, 70s i suppose TV. that's true but our number five you campaigned real hard for this yeah. even though you hate because you hated it more than i did <laughs> total recall 2070 golly i hated this show <laughs> oh like like it I, I i have trouble sitting through very few of these shows my tolerance is high I had a lot of trouble. Just get like it felt like I was watching weeks and weeks and weeks of television, and it was a long lasting show. It was hour long shows. Yeah. There were like twenty episodes yeah. of this damn thing. And again, I maintain the idea for Total Recall twenty seventy is a good idea for which, a show. Oh yeah, which one? <laughs> because <laughs> there were eight different ideas floating around. The in idea there. is that basically every sci fi idea Philip K. Dick ever had mm. coexists in the same universe, it's and the, so you the have shared Philip K. Dick universe. So you have robots from Blade Runner mm. and the memory uh, altering technology from Total Recall and those stories inform each other and there's some neat ideas there. a big budget sci-fi show just called PKD. I would watch that. I have that one. That sounds like a good show. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's Total Recall 2070 (laughs) and there were episodes that I liked enough and concepts that I liked enough Mm -hmm. to get me through it. Look, it's just slow. There were, look, the stars were fine. I liked some of the actors in it. I liked some of the supporting actors in it. Martin Sheen shows up. The, the, some of the concepts were very appealing. I liked the idea of like the the master robot consciousness that they introduced near the end of the series. Mm-hmm. That that was kind of intriguing to me. The the line delivery of every single actor is somnambulistic at best. Everybody's speaking really slowly, mm-hmm. and they're all speaking as if they're giving a noir monologue. And it doesn't help that all the music the, in the show uh, is. Like, kind of, literally trying to put you this Yeah, this kind of, like, slow, sleepy jazz. Everything's lit very badly. Every scene 
plays the same because everybody's having a really potentous, potentous conversation about some really important thing that's going on. I'm going to go get some donuts. Yeah, you know what? Donut killed my father. You know, it's like... <laughs> and it, it, it was insufferable for 30 minutes, and I had to watch 20 damn hours of that stuff. And yet, even though it was really... Like, every episode felt like it was really long, every episode also felt like it cut out 15 minutes before the story was over. Yeah. Like, you kept waiting for, like, the other twist to sort of kick it into high gear, and it mm. never gets there. <laughs> it's just like, oh, and it turns out this person did it. Oh, okay, what's the... Tw- credits, what? <laughs> no! <laughs> Something has to happen, right? It's, it's like watching a porno movie, but the the lights fade every time the sex starts, but the film keeps going, and we kind of hear the sex, and then the sex scene cuts off as soon as the lights flip on. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Total Recall. And that yeah, I, was I, re- I really hated Total Recall twenty seven. But even that wasn't as bad mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the people. And the people has the opposite problem where nothing happens. It should be something happening. It should be. It's. It was a candidate for the weirdest show. It's about uh, super powered Amish people, basically. Yeah. And a, a city woman who comes in and discovers their secret. Turns out they're all aliens. Mm. That sounds exciting, right? That well, sounds I'm like a weird. I'm fine. Yeah. People. This was a, a viewer poll or listener poll, and they uh, we had people say like we thought it was going to be weird and fun. Mm. It is not. <laughs> it is. Boring. Woman comes to town. 40 minutes later, oh, kids have superpowers. 40 minutes later, mm. dancing kazoos. Guy hits his head, quick surgery, and we're good. Yeah. What the fuck? The, the only one part that's kind of weird is when we finally get the, the exposition dump about like an hour into the thing. Where I finally learn about sort of the alien past and the secret of all of these people. And there's just big, long narration. It's like, really? This is weird. Mm-hmm. This, there's a this, lot of mythology this, here. It's basically yeah. the mythology of Nightbreed. It's about a bunch of superpower people. They were persecuted by humanity and mm. now they live in isolation. The plot should have something to do with people finding out that they're there and fears of xenophobia and kids coming into their own and realizing they have all this potential that they have unrealized. And instead, it's about a teacher who finds out that her that basically the cult that she fears her kids are in is right. So fuck it. Dancing kazoos. <laughs> Dancing kazoos. God damn the Kazoos people. on fishing line. And it was produced by Francis Ford Coppola. What the fuck? In, in the 70s, before he started to suck. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> All right, number three. And I feel bad about this one because this was a this was a listener request. Mm. But damn yeah, it. it sorry, just, I'm so sorry. We couldn't get past this one. Yeah. And we know this one is fans. We're just going to put it out there. It mm. has a bit of a cult. Their website's dedicated to it. And it's certainly ambitious. And I'll give that it, it is. For sure. But when you sit down and binge Charlie Jade, it becomes a bit of a chore. <laughs> yeah. Charlie Jade is a Canadian series, actually just like Total Recall 2070, and they mm-hmm. have a very similar uh, dreary tone. Mm-hmm. Charlie Jade Charlie is a, a little more brutal, but yeah. Yeah, Charlie Jade is a great idea for a show. I actually really like the idea for the mm-hmm. show. Uh, basically, um, there are multiple realities. Mm-hmm. Um, Alpha, beta, and gamma. Uh, that are parallel to each other. One of them is very idyllic. The other two are various shades of Blade Runner. Like one is ostensibly our world, but the other mm. one is very dystopian yeah, and yeah. fucked up. And uh, someone has discovered a way to bridge those realities. And a private detective winds up in the wrong reality, and he's trying to find a way to get home and solve a mystery of this big conspiracy of this corporation that's bouncing between worlds and stealing resources. And all of that sounds kind of neat. Mm. It's not. <laughs> it, it sounds neat for like a big feature film, mm-hmm. like one film. 
Yeah. T- two two hour twenty minute a good summer blockbuster. A, long, a good sci-fi channel miniseries. You can get like oh, four hours yeah. of cool stuff out of this. And there's some fun ideas in here about like people living multiple lives in different realities. In mm. one reality, he's a villain, in another reality, he's a family man, and you would think that would be cool. It's not. It's not, not ever really addressed. It just sort of happens. Yeah, it's just it's another one where like Total Recall, just the tone. Mm. is drab. Well, and the the mystery becomes so complicated after a while. And there's so many mini mysteries throughout and so many different mysteries surrounding every single one of the characters. And then that it seems to lose focus really quickly. It's mm. like we're supposed to be uncovering this big plot about this corporation and we get sidetracked and like the plots of the assassins or these other an, 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 another ancillary character, ancillary character who's suddenly in another dimension and she has to figure out where she is and they don't even meet up until halfway through the series. You know, you should, they, they meet up at the end of the pilot. That's where they meet up. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> and they te- and they team up and they, anyway. So, yeah, they, they just sort of elongate the narrative in, in artificial ways that make it less and less interesting and make it really, just like Total Recall, a slog to get through. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we mentioned that it's 30 episodes at one point. I think it's closer to 22. It's um, a long show. But it though. feels long. That's the issue here. Yeah. Um, and yet, mm-hmm. wasn't as bad as... Mm-hmm. Imaginary Mary. <laughs> now, again, I find the ending of Imaginary Mary fascinating. Mm. I, I think I laughed once or twice while I was watching it. Mm. But this is like the kind of sitcom you make when you're coming up with a fake sitcom to show yeah. how bad a sitcom is inside a good sitcom. Mm-hmm. Like this like just. The, this is what. Which which of the friends was the actor? Was it Matt LeBlanc's Joey, character? Yeah, Joey. Joey, Joey Tribbiani. This is, this is the sitcom Joey would try would try out for. Yeah. Like it would be like. Yeah, exactly. It's It feels like a gag. Mm. Jen Elfman is a funny actor. She has, mm-hmm. she has, it's been a while since she's been in anything good, but she's a funny actor. Um, and again, the idea of your old imaginary friend visiting you as an adult mm-hmm. in a time of crisis, you can do something with that. They don't. <laughs> and what's weird is that most of the episodes, Mary has almost nothing to do with anything. Yeah, she she kind of helps Jenna Elfman come up with a bad way to solve her problem, mm-hmm. but then she comes up with the good way, and then it's over. When when she comes up with bad advice and the Jenna Elfman character follows it, then at least Mary has something to do with the plot. Often, Mary would offer bad advice, and Jen Elfman would ignore it immediately and go about her way and fail on her own, and then figure it out on her own, and Mary had nothing—Mary's presence was completely extraneous. Yeah, we didn't need that. It's like a, it's another My Mother of the Car situation. Mm-hmm. If the plot has nothing to do with the reason the show exists, <laughs> the show doesn't need to exist, or at least really, you, you work yourself up over nothing. You added this weird element for nothing. Again, if you had this sort of mad creature who's, you know, it kept on offering advice— like, even when she was trying to have conversations, was just trying to scream her out. Mm-hmm. And it was played by Sam Kinison or something. Dude, it's... Tra- well, first off, there's a show like that that we need to review. Oh, well. Char- uh, Charlie Hoover. Well, that's dear, right? Charlie, <laughs> there's yeah. Charlie Hoover. We, we're going to do that. has Sam Kinison. There, there actually is a sitcom mm-hmm. about a guy who has an imaginary friend played by Sam Kinison mm-hmm. as, like, a two-foot-tall Sam Kinison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, like, fantasy... I, yeah, we, we have that. So I guess we'll get to that and see if it's the good version of Imaginary Mary. I, I, but I think Mary we offered that this, as a poll option and no one picked it. Th- there's like, this weird benevolent, uh, like, friendliness to Mary that undercuts any of the edginess that this weird premise would belie. Yeah. And it becomes just dull. It's just a dull, yeah, dull, it's just dull, a dull show. Like, everyone's okay in it, 
but no one's no, good because it, there's nothing to work with. There's no reason for it to be good. Like it, its tone is dead middle average, and you throw in this weird premise, and it just becomes a terrible idea. Yeah, so badly uh, executed, and yet. <laughs> and I don't know what's out there. I just want to mention it in case anyone's thinking it. Yeah, it is weird that My Mother the Car isn't on our list of weirdest or worst. <laughs> it's weird and it's bad. Uh-huh. These ones were, were weirder mm. and worse. Uh, uh, and again, we have another tie on our hands, but mm. they go together because they're basically the same show. Yeah. The one two punch of Drac Pack and Monster Squad. Almost ruined my October. Like, <laughs> was Halloween a, was dead to me. That was a rough two-week period. So we came up, we found out that there was not one, but two shows about well, the Universal Monsters, a Wolfman, a Frankenstein, we, and a Dracula solving crimes. We discovered Monster Squad mm-hmm. uh, entirely by chance. I thought, oh, this is great. We'll do this show. It's this mm-hmm. monster-themed show from the makers of Batman. How could that be bad? Oh, that's how. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> it could be terrible. Turns out. And in so do in doing research on Monster Squad, we discovered Drac Pack, a show that has almost the exact same premise. So we figured, why not pair them up? <laughs> how how much worse could it get? <laughs> oh, that much worse. Oh. Ow. Monster Squad, as we've already discussed, is an incredibly painful television series. Mm. Yes, it's aimed at little children, but I think it's aimed at children that the that the producers hate. <laughs> like I hate kids. Let's make something mm. to hurt them. Like that's what Well, you look at something like Sid and Marty Croft. It's like that's weird crap that kids wouldn't understand, but you can tell that there's a weirdness to Sid and Marty Croft, the creators. You know, mm-hmm. like they actually believe in something like Lidsville. They've got this Willy Wonka vibe. Yeah, they just want yeah, to yeah. be creative and fun. Monster Squad feels condescending. It feels and really. Cheap. Yeah, it feels cynical. Like, like when you the villain layers are all the mm. exact same like backdrops, but they mm. add like, oh, we're gonna put new aluminum foil stuff on the walls. Mm, that way, you know it's found a wizard. Some tiki masks at Party City that we're gonna hang up. It's cheap. It's lame. There was one funny joke in the whole thing, and that's a telethon to, to stop uh, the number one uh, uh, cause of death. Mm. Natural causes. We're going to finally put an end <laughs> to natural causes. That's still a funny joke. Uh, I will let uh, you have that joke. Everything mm. else about Monster Squad is terrible. Mm. And yet, it, it's Drag Pack is probably worse, but they're just kind of the same thing. From, from an objective standpoint, yeah. Drag Pack is an animated series. It's a Hanna, Bar- Hanna Barbera show yeah. made out of its Canadian studio, if I recall, or it's, maybe it's Australian studio. Anyway, it stars a young. It's like Dracula Junior mm. and Frankenstein Junior and a Wolfman Junior, and they're teenage. They're hip teenagers. They're hip teenagers, and um, they can uh, engage in the Drac Pack Whack, which is not sexual oh, slang. The Drac Whack. The Drac Whack. The Drac Whack. Serge, what did you do? He hit something. Your, your cat is opening jars. That wouldn't um, surprise me at all, actually. <laughs> He's grown thumbs now. Yeah, they do the Drac Whack, and they turn into the monster versions of themselves. Uh, ordinarily, they look like just bland teenager mm, kids. Just normal Just nor- normal white dudes. And then they turn into monster dudes. But not much has really changed. No. When Dracula Jr. turns into Dracula, he becomes a shapeshifter. But he shapeshifted to turn into Dracula, so what's the point? <laughs> Dude, I don't know. He's a know. double shapeshifter? I've put so much of this show out. I've tried, mm-hmm. actively tried not to remember anything about this show. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I remember about the mm-hmm. show. Uh, they have a sh- you remember the, back- the villain, right? I remember the snidely whiplashes villain who was yeah. the same guy who voiced uh, the uh, Captain Hook in yeah. the Disney Peter Pan. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge waste of his talents. Um... I remember, remember, uh, remember his his associate Toad uh-huh. whipping himself uh, as a form of self punishment, saying yeah. bad 
Toad. Yeah. Bad Toad. It sounds like sounds like Peter Laurie. Yeah. Um, I remember the one time the bad guys had a plot uh, to uh make a propaganda film against the drag pack mm. about the drag pack doing things like ruining kids birthday parties and i'm just yeah. like how did they get funding for this and like who who said the script was okay were there not notes <laughs> like there's no plot to this it's just like dracula jr oh, remember he also has like a, a color sucking ray he tries to suck color mm-hmm. out of stuff in one episode oh and then that was the there's thing the... it's like oh they sucked, sucked all the color out of this painting now it's just a stupid drawing and yeah throw, it away. throw and like, away the painting and then there was uh, when the bad guy uh like kept having secret meanings with drac jr uh-huh. but he would call him up on things like wall graffiti and like the wall graffiti yeah, would suddenly yeah. just be a person mm. And you're like, what? Sort of like the the secret messages in Inspector Gadget, but, but made way less sense. Do you remember those little little uh, uh, egg things that ate everything? Oh yeah, the little eggs with legs that would just sort of chow down on stuff. They're like critters. I wasted a lot of my life. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't usually usually when I watch like yeah. stuff for canceled too soon, I think to myself, this is this is research. This, this is, is research. Cult- I, cultural delving. I get to say that I saw this, and no one else, hardly anyone else, does anymore. Mm. No one else seeks a lot of these things out, and I get to sort of be a curator or, or sort of carry mm. a torch. And uh, here I'm just like, I'm wasting my life. <laughs> I'm watching Drag Pack, and I'm thinking to myself. Why? Why do I do this? Why is Drag Pack doing this to me? I wonder sometimes. And you know what? We're going to do more animated series I for know, Hanna Barbera, and they're going to give you that same feeling. So just get used to it. We need to do more. Bear si- the pain. We need to do more sitcoms, and we need to do animation. We've yeah, hardly done yeah. any. We really need to get around to it. Well, we're going to have a Hanna Barbera month. I'll, yeah. s- I'll say that on oh, mic. I'm going to commit us to a Hanna Barbera month God at some us. point. Okay, fine. <laughs> All right. Before we get to the yeah. best series that we reviewed. We need to do our audience award. Now, our audience mm. award uh, was selected by listeners of the show. They voted on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash cancel too soon. Or they emailed us, mm. cancel too soon at gmail.com, with their picks for the top three episodes of the show. Now, these are not necessarily the best shows we reviewed or the shows mm. you liked the most. These are the episodes of the show that you dug. Yeah. And we're not doing this to stroke our ego because if we did, we screwed up because they're like half the episodes didn't get any votes. And we're just like, oh, ah. we wasted our time. Like, you that's not why. You didn't vote for Drag Pack, you bastards. No, we, we did this to get a sense of what you like so we can mm. do more of it. And it turns out mostly you like the weird shit. <laughs> so uh, our, our number five uh, runner up in the audience award mm. was for Poor Devil. Yay. Poor Devil's a fun show. Yeah. I really liked discovering Poor Devil. I really liked uh, being able to tell people to go see Poor Devil. And uh, it was a real treat. It's just something I thought was weird, and we took a chance. Uh, It was another one where we were going to review something else, but we didn't have time, so we had to just do a quick pilot. (laughs) It was fun. Yep. So that was great. Thank you. Thank you for enjoying Poor Devil. Number four, Almost Human, Um, which I... I I, I guess it's because maybe it, we just liked the show so much. It's a good show. People remembered the show, mm. and um, um, and we dug it too. We were actually sometimes people like get a lot of requests. Oh, could you review the show? And then we don't mm. like it very much. And yeah, I can understand being frustrated by that. But yeah, almost human, great. Mm. Uh, number three, my mother, the car. <laughs> and I can only imagine part of this is because Alonzo Duralde joined us for that, and he yeah. is a treasure. That he is, and we love him. Mm-hmm. And it was a hell of listen. We watched that show, so you don't have to. So welcome. We watched a lot of it, too. All right. Our number two episode, Fishing with John. (laughs) Fishing with John, a very bizarre show about John Lurie fishing with various celebrities Mm. and them kind of finding a plot afterwards in the editing room. And us trying to uh, suss out kind of the 
the media study implications of what Fishing with John was trying to do. Maybe it was yeah. that discussion that drew our listeners it in. It is a quaalude of a show, and mm-hmm. I'm glad you enjoyed uh, listening about it as much as we enjoyed researching it and talking about it. And our number one episode, which I'm, I'm a little surprised by, but mm-hmm. awesome, Terror Vision. <laughs> Y'all really liked Terror Vision. Yeah, I guess when we when we dig up weird nuggets, that's, that's what you like. That's the sweet spot. Hey, listen... A lot of you are donating to our Patreon account, and again, we thank you so much for that. And you probably wouldn't do that if you didn't like the raison d'etre of the show, which is dicking up weird shit. Yeah. So thank you very, very much. Uh, Again, uh, all of the nominees uh, for this category were voted on by you, and everyone who voted had their name put in the Totoro Hat of Doom, and we have a video we have just recorded. We're going to put it up shortly after this episode premieres. And uh, two of you have been selected to... Pick a future episode of Cancel Too Soon, Mm -hmm. and for the runner-up, the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. Yeah. Uh, So we'll be contacting you very shortly about uh, getting your picks for that, and we will be reviewing those in the month of June. Because May, we're heading up to our big 100th episode, and we've already got plans. Uh, But June, we're going to have your stuff, and we're really excited, and we can't (laughs) wait to see what you're going to pick. Because everyone picks weird stuff in our estimation. We're eager, we're eager. All right, and then finally, uh, and, and pick whatever. Don't pick, yeah. don't don't try to find something we'll li- we we no, like, or don't. just pick whatever you want to hear us yeah. talk about. You, you be a show you like, be a mm. show you never heard of, could be a show that like you know you you've heard legends of or whatever. We mm. just have to be able to find it, and it has to fit the rules. Boom, that's it. All right, and now finally, the, the best, best shows, shows that and, we that we reviewed ever on Council Too Soon and in the last year. <laughs> there's a lot. There's a couple of shows uh, we really wanted to put on our top five mm. that we just didn't have the room for. I was a big fan of Journeyman. You were a big mm. fan of The Flash, yeah. Um, which I like, but you liked even more than I did. Mm. Uh, but these are the five that we could agree on mm. were great and were definitely <laughs> 100% canceled uh-huh. too soon. Mm. Our number five, a show we really didn't get a chance to talk about just because it doesn't really fit any of the other mm. categories, was Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. Yeah, and we got to talk to the show's creator, on uh, which who I'm now following on Twitter. Oh, that's, yeah, Brianne Drewhart. <laughs> Brianne uh, Drewhart. Uh, she, she came up with this. It's based on a DC Comics character. She found a way to take this character who was about, which is about a young woman ending up in sort of a sword and sorcery fantasy realm, and she mm-hmm. updated it to a young uh, college student who ends up inside her RPG video game, mm-hmm. and it combines a lot of the premises of fantasy literature, video game mechanics, and anime. Mm. into one really entertaining, very short animated In- series. Incredibly frantic and incredibly funny series. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, when, when we talked to, to Brian, uh, Brian Drewhard, um, about this, she was uh, lamenting the fact that she had so little time. Each episode is only, is only a scant, like two minutes. Yeah. Tiny, tiny little things. And I actually, w- uh, said how much I admired that mold because it reveals how little time you need to tell a story, how much information you can actually cram into a mere two minutes. And mm-hmm. I'm sure she had to bend over backwards and break her neck to make sure everything was cogent inside those two minutes. But I think she did it very, very well. Mm-hmm. And I like that that efficiency is what made it so entertaining, not just its brevity. But that we got so much out of it. We got setups and payoffs. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of character development. We got gags and self-reference. And, uh, you know... The animation and, and is gorgeous. A lot of animation and a, a kind of understanding of the vista we occupy. All within this tiny, tiny, tiny little chunk. 
And, you know, when I look at a gigantic blockbuster that spends 40 minutes establishing the world, I say, stop it. Watch Amethyst of Gen World. They do it in two minutes. Yeah, you can That's watch the... all we need. You can watch the entire first and sadly only season of Amethyst of Gen World. Oh. Princess, Amethyst Princess of Gen Princess World. Princess of Gen sorry. World, yeah. Uh, you can watch the entire first season in like under 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's worth it. It's so good. <laughs> like, it's really uh-huh. a shame that it wasn't a bigger hit. It should have been. Mm-hmm. And it was not. So check that out. I'm really, really glad we reviewed it. Uh, number four, a show that I'm... Another one I'm surprised we didn't have a chance to talk about sooner. Because <laughs> it's strange, mm-hmm. and it's fun, and there was nothing once like it, and we both loved it. It's called Cliffhangers. Yeah. Cliffhangers is cool. Cliffhangers is cool. It's a cool idea. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a serialized show of different... Different shows within the same show. Mm, which we actually did a couple of those. We, mm. uh, Danger Theater was was similar, but it was way more hit and miss. Mm. Um, but the idea was... I, I almost voted for Danger Theater. Just, I know. I, I just I think it's more it. hit and miss. I love Danger Theater so much. I know you do. I love uh, uh, the... What was the Danger Bader one? The Searcher. The Searcher. The Searcher is <laughs> good. The other one's okay. All right. Um, but Cliffhangers was... Uh, uh, mm. One third of the show was a show called Stop Susan Williams... Which is about a reporter who's investigating a big conspiracy, and every episode was full of huge cliffhangers, mm. falling off of buildings, about to get eaten by a lion, stuff about to fall, D- dangling on it. over piranhas, yeah, flying yeah. over cliffs. It's great. <laughs> it's really energetic and fun, and yeah, the acting is kind of lame, but that's kind of the point. <laughs> the other one was uh, the next well, one. Uh, all of them, like none of them were like too he- there weren't like hefty dramas yeah they were meant to play kind of old-fashioned so all of the actors are overacting a little bit and that works to the show's benefit yeah the other one was was it the secret kingdom the hidden kingdom oh i think it was the hidden kingdom The hidden kingdom. okay it's a it's a western it's a sci-fi western it's a sci-fi yeah. western and whenever they do the old west stuff it's in black and white but then they journey down to a futuristic city underneath the surface of the earth mm. and then it goes to color yeah and it's this super crazy buckaroo bonsai and buck rogers nonsense the, yeah the main character is this big manly white cowboy guy and then there's all these like weird evil alien villains that, yeah it's, it, it was it was pretty wild all of them start mm. not on the first episode Stop Susan Isn't Williams. That great? Stop Susan Williams begins. The first episode was it was part two of Stop Susan Williams. Uh, Hidden Kingdom was like episode seven or something. Yeah, like really yeah. dunking into it. And then Dracula was the third like one. Third, fourth, yeah. yeah. And Dracula, Dracula is a respectable Dracula adaptation. Like, yeah, well, and this this one is it, it does play more like Dark Shadows, like it's a mm-hmm. kind of a broad uh, soap opera dynamic, but it is more about sort of the interpersonal connections between Dracula and kind of the um, Mina Harker type character. Yeah, so Dracula, played by Michael Nouri, who I nominated for, and we just couldn't fit him into the top five <laughs> for our best actor award because yeah. he's a really good Dracula. He's a really good Dracula. Michael Nouri from uh, Scarface, probably people know him best from that, or uh, uh, what was the. Uh, what a feel, Flashdance. Oh. Flash <laughs> uh, <laughs> like you know the song called Flashdance. What a feeling! A All right, but uh, yeah, so he plays Dracula, and he's got a really. He's trying to seduce Mina Harker, uh, or the their version of yeah. Mina Harker. To uh, she's not named Mina, but she's she's Mina Harker, and he's got good arguments. Like yeah. they actually have real conversations that mm-hmm. are really thoughtful, and he sells it super well. They're ve- they're all varying degrees of good. I'd say mm. Dracula's probably the best overall. Stop Susan yeah. Williams is the most energetic overall, mm. and Hidden Kingdom is the weirdest overall. <laughs> but they're all really fun, mm. and it's a shame that this show is mostly forgotten. 
It, and it's a pity that something like this hasn't been tried since then. Like, mm-hmm. it's not like this was such a big bomb that they never tried it again. Yeah. It's just, it got forgotten. And I'm surprised nobody just thought, hey, why don't we try another serialized type thing? It's another one I wish, like, someone like Shout Factory would put out yeah, on DVD yeah. so it can find an audience. Because they're fun. Mm-hmm. They're really, really good. And some of them even uh, popped up on TV as TV movies. They just took the all the Stop Susan Williams part. Yeah. And it's called, like, The Girl Who Saved the World or something like that. Hmm. It's crazy. Uh, our number three... Damn good show, very recent, mm-hmm. almost human, almost human, and we've talked a lot about it all. It's the we don't ult- we don't really need to say much more about almost. Just human. real fast, we've become connoisseurs of the cops with robot partners genre. It is the best. It's exciting. A couple of lame episodes towards the end, but even they're not bad. They're just not up to snuff. But... L- lame in the almost human universe is better than the whole of Future Cop. Yeah, but like when you have the episode <laughs> with Gina Carano as basically the Terminator it's... and going to kill everyone in the world. Like and sneaking her head onto onto other robot bodies. John Larroquette is grappling hooking like across like a giant wall in order to get some land of androids. Or like, I don't know what the hell's going on. It's fucking cool. Mm-hmm. It's a great show. It's a funny show. It's a satisfying show. Mm-hmm. It deserves an audience. If you haven't seen yeah. it, seek it out. And, and you can find it. It's out there. It's on the like the streaming services yeah. and stuff. Uh, uh, number two mm. is, uh, again, weird show, great show, Fishing with John. <laughs> we talked endlessly about sort of what this show meant. Like, what are they trying to do? And we did sort of stage it in these almost McLuhan-ish terms about sort of the, the function of media. And... Uh, when you're having conversations about the function of media by watching this really admittedly stupid show about people who don't know how to fish doing stupid things and having conversations that go nowhere, then you're doing something right. Yes. Fishing with John is difficult to categorize. It's certainly reality TV, but it's also Mm -hmm. totally fictional. Um, It's relaxing and yet also wildly creative. Mm. It's a real treat, and it's on the Criterion Collection, and it's on the Criterion Collection for a reason. So <laughs> check out Fishing with John. You absolutely deserve to see it, and mm. I really wish they'd made some more of it because it was a real, real hoot. Yeah. Um, of course, having just this many episodes does make it a little bit more of a treasure. Mm-hmm. That's like, true. If it had considered, continued for like six years, people would say, oh, I think the joke would wear thin after uh, a while. Perhaps, yeah. but I still would have liked to have seen some more. I think it would have been a lot. I'd, of- I'd love to see it, see them come back and try to do it with like modern stars. Like, could you? Could you see someone like Michael Sarah on Fishing with John? Yes. Yeah. After yeah. I'd love Peaks, to. See, yeah. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. That'd be yeah. great. All right. And That's our, right, Wally Brando. <laughs> so weird. And then lastly, lastly, our pick for the best series that we reviewed this year, mm-hmm. and honestly, it wasn't even a contest. We were both just yeah. like, yeah, yeah. This, this is it. And if you've listened to the episode, you probably guess it based on the glowing ways mm-hmm. in which we described Sweet Vicious. Mm-hmm. Sweet Vicious is really is it? I, I think it should be an important show. And it's, it's not too late to discover it's still widely available. Uh, it needs to be seen. It is of its time. It, it, it almost, is before, ahead of its time. Uh, it's entertaining and emotionally charged. Uh, it is uh, political uh, in a very and, in a very in a confrontational way. It, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't pussyfoot around the politics of what they're doing and the gender dynamics of what they're doing and the feminism of what they're doing. It discusses these things openly, but in a way that, A, you can understand, and B, the characters would actually talk about these things Mm -hmm. in that way. And on top of it, it's also a good vigilante show. (laughs) Yeah, it's also fun fun and colorful and action. It has these genre elements, but by adding this incredible and potent subtext to all of it, they just take something that, Mm -hmm. listen, you can say what you want about, you know, Infinity War doing something crazy with the superhero Mm -hmm. medium. It's just... 
another superhero story mm. in a lot of ways. When you infuse something with the politics, something like Sweet Vicious or Black Panther, mm. you're you're really creating something relevant. You're not just yeah. doing a fun yeah. story. Sweet Vicious is relevant, and it is an incredibly told story, and it is really. Mm. really canceled too soon. I would love to have seen what it could have done. If yeah. it was still going on now, well, what it could be saying, what it could be doing. There's so much potential. This is the only show that we've seen that I think could actually help people. Like, yeah. the, the stars were, were, like, touring colleges with episodes of this stuff, talking, you know, this this is a really serious conversation we need to have. Sweet Vicious is having this conversation on MTV. Yeah. And people aren't watching the show. They were not. I guess, I guess you know, in, in between, you know, best films of 97, sort of, like, I guess that's VH1. Yeah. But, yeah, in, in between I'm, all the empty crap that MTV is putting on, people didn't want to really have, stop and have a, a meaningful conversation. And it's a damn It's not shame. 1994 we got, anymore. We got two seasons of Scream the Series mm. and a TV movie mm. of Scream the Series. And let me tell you something. Not even remotely as good as Sweet Vicious. <laughs> like, it was okay. I haven't seen any of the Scream series. The second season was okay. Mm. First season was... Meh. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it, it was... That's what got multiple seasons on MTV, but we mm. couldn't keep Sweet Vicious going. My God. Yeah. And Tragic. I th- well, I think they wrapped it up very well. I think they, mm. they, kind of turned, they kind of turned it outward. It's like it was about these sort of vigilantes. They're getting revenge on individual attackers on their campus, and they kind of turned it out. They said, you know what? It's more than just a problem with the two of us here. Mm-hmm. It's a problem everywhere, and we need to sort of turn that outward. And that's kind of what the show tried to do in itself. That's what the stars and the producers did. We have to turn this outward. We have to make sure that there's a voice out there in the world that's dealing with sexual assault in a really important way. And the series did it. And we can just sit and watch this series and get a lot of really important lessons and have a really important conversation. Yeah, bless them. Yeah. I'm so glad we watched Sweet Vicious. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad to everyone who suggested that we watch it because, you know, that was part of our September when we were trying to catch up on a lot of shows that were canceled the previous season and there was no shortage of material. Mm-hmm. And there were people who said, you have to watch it. You have to. <laughs> and I'm so glad mm-hmm. you pushed for it because we couldn't ignore you. We couldn't be like, well, we have all these other shows. Okay, well, what's we vicious? Holy crap, you were right. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, like, Pitch was good, but this is insane. Like, oh, my God. So, Sweet Vicious... Best show easily, easily in the last. And honestly, year, like last year, soon. our most canceled too soon show, Perversions of Science, nowhere near as good as Sweet Vicious. Best no, thing we've ever. No, no. Per- Perversions of Science still a good show, good but show. I mean, Sweet Vicious is yeah, just a, is a great show. So that is it. Mm-hmm. That is it for our second year, of second annual SUNY Awards. Thank you, everybody who voted. Thank you, everybody who listened. Mm-hmm. Thank you, everyone on our Patreon account. If you want to join our Patreon account, it's Patreon.com/slash Canceled Too Soon. It's canceled with one L. Um, we have uh, a bunch of exclusive content up there. We have uh, bonus episodes of the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently had our pilot season, uh, in which we debuted a whole bunch of bonus type podcasts. And the winner of that particular poll, the uh, Patreon subscribers, decided they wanted to hear more of All the Best, a podcast in which we review every single nominee for Best Picture in order. We hit one small snag on that. Turns out the title All the Best is taken by another show. We're going to have to come up with another title for it. Mm. We'll figure it out. But that show will continue. We're kicking a few around. And that will either be exclusive to Patreon or it might potentially eventually be a timed exclusive where you'll get it and then a month later we'll release it elsewhere. Mm. But that's going to be another Patreon. Uh, We are going to have our own website uh, real soon. (laughs) We just bought the domain name today. Mm. Uh, We're going to be developing that. I'm not sure how fast we're going to be able to get that up. But uh, we're going to be adding... 
another uh, uh, perk on our Patreon to our $10 tier. We're going to make a few changes, mm-hmm. take a few things off, add a few more things. Let us know if you have any problems. Uh, but for the $10 tier, you're going to be able to assign Whitney and I uh, articles right, to write. Writing assignments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're paying you, you, us. You are editor. We are writer. Yeah. So we're, there are going to be some guidelines on that. But uh, you're going to get one article from each of us uh, per year. If you're on the ten dollar mm-hmm. a year uh, tier, uh, so that's going to be an additional thing in addition to the new podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna have a few other ideas as well. It's going to be a lot of fun over there. So check that out. Please mm-hmm. join in. Um, and uh, again, you can email us cancel too soon at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at cancelcast. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And we will be back next week with the first episode of Cancel Too Soon Year Three. And we're gonna be counting down three of our most commonly requested shows the shows people want us to review Mm. and the number three spot which will be coming up next uh was a listener poll from our patreon account a patreon you get to vote for uh one episode a month uh and we gave you a whole bunch of shows that people ask us to review all the time and you picked cop rock a serious hard-boiled show about cops who rock it's I also a musical. You, I thought you liked us. Cop Rock. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Weekly musical show about cops. You, you like you like it when we review like weird shit like Steel Justice and Terror Vision and Hundred Lives of Blackjack Savage? Come back next week. <laughs> Cop Rock will like burn the hair out of your nose. Like it's it's a hell of a thing. Oh, I can't wait. Oh my god. So come back next week for that. Um, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. That is a wrap. We'll see you next season.